Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. song is called Fay Ray. It's by a group called Fay Ray. Their 2008 album Tug Love, which is available on iTunes. Welcome to episode 35 of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from KCCinephile.com and MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. Richard, tell us why Fay Ray is an appropriate opening song for this month's meeting. We're going to be doing things a little bit different this month. We're covering, rather than doing like one, two, or three films, we're going to be kind of covering a selection of genre-related films from Hollywood's first screen queen, Faye Ray. This was based on the recommendation of our listener, Nicholas Hatcher, and 1907 is the year in which Faye Ray was born. She passed away in 2004 in the month of August. So August 8th in, in celebration of... In celebration of her death day, I don't know. I mean, in recognition of her of her passing, uh, so many years ago. And this month, we're going to be uh, taking a look at a selection of the genre films that Faye Ray and I think it's going to be fun. A little bit different than we've done in the past. It's always kind of good to stir things up, take us a little bit off kilter every once in a while. I guess this is our second month in a row going off format a little bit. So don't worry, we'll be back on track next month. But this month's going to be a fun one. That's right. Like Richard said, it's going to be a little bit different. We probably won't be playing any trailers this time, but I do have some clips from some interviews that Fay Ray did in her later years. She was pretty available or present with TV interviews. and uh, So we'll use some clips from there. I've got some uh, information that came from an a f- issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. So we're going to just kind of pepper those in and, and go through Fay Ray's career Thanks, Nick, for mentioning that, and you're going to have a big part in this episode, as you all will find out in just a few minutes. Let's call this meeting to order, and let's do a roll call of our new members. We've probably had our biggest month yet for new members, uh, again, on that Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Let's welcome Alistair Hughes, Ben Crow, Paul Herndon, Dan Johnson, Donovan Talley, Thomas Peterson, and Newt Olav Burgett. That's, that's a banner month here. And I'm thinking that 
I, well, I wonder if any of those are, are because of those little postcards we put out at uh, Monster Bash. I'd be curious, I mean, if you're listening to the show and you just joined in the last month or so, how did you hear about us? Is it, you know, just via Facebook and other groups or, you know, were you at Monster Bash? Did you pick up one of our postcards? I'm kind of curious on that. I'd like to know how, how people are finding out about our podcast. Of course, welcome. Indeed, welcome to the welcome to the club. And another way you might have heard about us is maybe from an iTunes review. Uh, I did not check this time, Richard, but I did hear something encouraging from another podcast I listened to. The uh, podcaster said on the iTunes page he goes to, he doesn't see all the reviews. He only sees a couple. So he I don't know how to do it, but you dig deeper, supposedly. So I'm going to assume we have a lot more reviews than, than showing. And if not, if you guys haven't done a review, an honest rating on iTunes, please hop over there and do that. I, I have a feeling those could help us also get more listeners and more members. I thought about that too. It's like, I think it depends on if, if you're listening to a podcast on iTunes, like if you discover it on Facebook and you go to the, the podcast app, since all the apps are separated now on, on the newer iPhones, you just search for the, for the podcast and then it starts downloading. I don't know that it's as easy to get to the review thing as it used to be. I mean, if you're mm. using the old you know, iTunes app, which will someday be going away, where everything is, is all in one, yeah, you can see the reviews, but if you've got to go to the podcast itself and read the reviews, I'm thinking that as technology has changed, it's not as easy and maybe not as relevant. Although it is in a way because it gets the podcast out there, but it, I don't think it's as easy to get to. Normally, we would do old business here. We don't have any old business this time. However, we do have a voicemail. That's how good we were last month. We didn't have anything that needed correcting. Well, we went to Monster Bash. We experienced it. If if we got something wrong there, I'd be kind of worried if anyone would know. <laughs> Lurking uh, around the corners is like, did you guys really go to that yeah, movie? Yeah, I didn't I, see yes, you there. I didn't <laughs> see that. We do have a voicemail, though, and it's good to get this from Jonathan Angarola. He called us at 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And he's mostly commenting on our episode 31, where we talked about Mothra, Ghidorah, and Rodan. And I would expect nothing less from Jonathan. He's a big kaiju fan. He has a couple of interesting comments to make about that. Hey, guys. It is Jonathan. Just checking in after quite a hiatus from uh, providing feedback for the Classic Cars podcast. So my apologies. It's been a little crazy, as you know, uh, you know, adulting and all that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I got been listening to the episodes, and you guys are still killing it, as usual. Um, God, lots, lots to catch up on. Um, missed Monster Bash this year. Uh, missing you guys and the whole gang there. Sounds like a blast. I loved your coverage, uh, the coverage you guys did, the coverage uh, MKR did, and the coverage of the movie cast did. Uh, felt like I was there. Not quite the same thing, but it was something... Uh, sounds like it was a great event once again. Um, the House of the Gorgon screening, um, and obviously all the the other Q and A's and the other screenings um, that uh, went on there. It's a it's a program that's just chock full. Having gone in 2017 and 2018, you know, I can vouch for um, 
the fact that they do not leave a lot of space out there, which is great. So you definitely get your money's worth when you go to Monster Bash. Um, and I know you guys mentioned interesting. You guys mentioned the um, the microphones uh, at the sessions, and that we also have a roving mic, one or two mics, so that when folks ask questions, everyone can hear it, and that the um, you know moderator, speaker, presenter doesn't have to uh, repeat the questions. And I thought the same thing when I went to my first Monster Bash in 2017. I honestly don't think it's a. I think it's it's a fair um, point, but I hardly a, a criticism. Honestly, this is just something that would enhance, uh, you know, the content and uh, the presentation uh, for everybody. But I didn't think of it as a as a major nitpick. But I think it's a great idea. I don't know if you know it gets you know Ron's ear. Uh, Ron Adams here on that, but um, you know, it's it's hardly a huge deal. Um, but it was interesting that you guys mentioned that because I thought the same thing the first year I went. Um, yeah, uh, and going back to um, I think your couple episodes ago, you guys covered um, some kaiju films, which you know is my jam, especially the Showa era kaiju. Uh, you covered Rodan, Mothra, and Future of the Three Headed Monster, all classics in my eyes. Um, you talked a little bit about um, the Rodin designs, and I would agree. I think one of you said that the original, the 1956 design, is the best, and I really think that's the case. The rest, the other, from the other show of films and the later films, have something to offer, but that 56 design, I think, is the best. Looks most reptilian and just the coolest, quite frankly. <laughs> um, it's funny that the Rodan design for Ghidra's monster uh, is definitely a more comical design. And I can't take credit for this, but I think it's very funny. Someone described it as the Don Knotts of the kaiju world. It's definitely not just the design, but even the way Rodan acts, for lack of a better word, in that film, um, is uh, is pretty comical and kind of silly. Uh, I always enjoyed that film growing up. I know I've enjoyed all of them. Uh, but the I was just blown away as a kid watching uh, that film because it was the first time I understood what the monsters were quote unquote saying. You know when the, when the twin fairies are translating what Godzilla, Rodan, and Mothra are talking about. I just thought that was just the greatest that I could actually get into the heads of these classic monsters. Um, uh, but obviously it's a little different, but still pretty entertaining. And that's a that's a uh, that's actually a gorgeously shot film as well. Um, and it, so it's, it definitely has a rewatchability as do the others. Uh, you talked a little bit about Haru and Nakajima, and you covered you know a lot of his work, which is which was great. And and may, maybe you mentioned this, but if not, I guess we'd be remiss um, not to mention that he uh, did suit acting for all kinds of other kaiju's uh, during the show era, including Rodan, and uh, at least one film, probably more. Uh, he also played uh, Green Gargantua, um, Gyra from one of the Gargantuas. Um, he also played Baragun in, um, in Frankenstein Conquers the World and many other kaiju. So, um, great suit actor, really animated those characters and really gave them, really, really, really brought them to life. So, great work by Nakajima, which I know we lost him a few years ago. Um, also, um, you guys were talking about, I think, I don't know touched on commentaries. There are some great commentaries uh, on those classic media DVDs we did several years back. Um, although now that you have um, just got the news today that Criterion is putting out all 15 original show era 
Godzilla films, which is blowing my mind, and I'm super excited. I know Jeff and I were just talking about this, uh, and I'm sure, Rich, you're interested as well, but um, I'm kind of blown away by that. I'm assuming that Criterion are going to have commentaries. I know they're remastered. Beautiful artwork, gorgeous artwork. Um, and I think we're just going to have to bite the bullet and get the set. How can we not? I mean, you know, there are a few of these on Blu-ray, but most of the show era... Um, Godzilla films are not, as far as I know, at least not in any readily accessible um, fashion. So, um, so that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, look forward to that. Um, yeah, one other thing, Kaiju related. You mentioned Varan, the unbelie- unbelievable, and um, Varan uh, is an interesting case. I know he had his own film, and I know that was um, that version, that '58 film, was severely. Um, edited and kind of um, sliced up and put back together again and with um, uh, the American producers that were involved in the American version of that film. Um, it's an interesting, interesting monster. Um, what I'd like to see more of, more of him. He has a cameo in Destroy All Monsters, which I think you mentioned. But it's also interesting that um, for GMK, um, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, King Ghidra, Giant Monsters All Out Attack. <laughs> That's the longest kaiju title I think there is. Uh, GMK in 2001. Um, what I've heard is originally that film was supposed to star um, Varan um, Angiris, I believe. It's also kind of a favorite kaiju of mine. And a third monster, and I'm blanking on which one it was supposed to be. But um, that day originally was supposed to um, be the star monsters, but that... Um, I don't know if it, were the, it was the producers thought that bringing in traditional, well-known monsters like uh, Mothra um, and um, um, Mothra, uh, I think it was Ghidra, um, Mothra, and oh, I'm blanking on that one, would have more marquee value and would, um, you know, draw more interest than using these other monsters, which are not as maybe not as well-known. So, kind of interesting fun fact. Um, Lastly, yes, the Fay Ray episode, looking forward to that. Um, I know it's a little bit of our genre work. Obviously, King Kong um, also enjoyed her in Most Dangerous Game and Mystery of the Wax Museum. So, those are really her genre, that's her genre work that I'm familiar with. Um, but I know she's done others. I think Dr. X and The Vampire Bat, which I have yet to see. So, really looking forward to that episode. Uh, as usual, you guys are doing a great job. Sorry about this long winded as usual, kind of disjointed <laughs> message. Um, but uh, try to get back on track, track and keep connected with what you guys are doing because, um, yeah, you guys always do good work. So hope all is well. And, um, yeah, um, we'll talk again uh, talk again soon. And um, I'll, uh, I'll see – well, really hoping to see you guys in 2020 at the 2020 Monster Bash. We can talk about that more another time but really targeting that one so I hope to see you guys there and the whole gang alright take care guys bye bye thank you Jonathan it was good to hear your voice I know you and I and, and, and Jeff we stay in touch via uh, text message and such but it, it's good to hear you back on the show and we thoroughly understand life's a little busy for you so play catch up you know we welcome anyone to comment on something we did two, three, four months ago. I know that's, I feel the same way. I listen to podcasts, I get behind, and I always, you know, hesitate commenting on something from several months ago. But it's always good to hear from listeners. So 
please call in. Let us know what you think. Godzilla, that was a fun episode, and we thoroughly were upfront that, hey, we're not kaiju experts. We know that there was a lot of mistakes in that, I'm sure, but it was good to hear, hear you talk about that, and I also want to kind of go back a, a little bit to another great friend and listener, Steve Turek, who called in with a lot of comments during that episode, and one of the things he did mention that we didn't pick up on or comment on um, at the time was he made a, a reference to what's your preference, Japanese original language versus the, the dubbed version. He had commented that he kind of sometimes leans towards the dubbed version because that's what he grew up watching. And, you know, the dubbed versions, as we mentioned in that episode, are, are sometimes different. There's some edits that are made here and there. Sometimes the American versions have re-edited the sequence of events to make more sense. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. My preference, answering Steve Turek's comments, would be I'm more now lean towards the original Japanese language because I, for me, you hear the intent behind, like the emotions, what was the actor or actress wanting to get you to feel in a particular scene. You don't get that with dubbing. You're getting someone reading a script, and, and a lot of times it sounds that way. Normally, I'm, I'm all for nostalgia. Uh, you know, I love watching the old Star Trek episodes with the original special effects because that's what I grew up watching for for decades. But with the with the kaiju films, I absolutely love with the the original Japanese language. So that's my preference. What about you? I don't even have to hesitate. Definitely the original Japanese language. I I like everything in its original format. That's why I don't like colorized movies or deleted scenes inserted back in. I like to see them as they were originally made and presented. That said, I guess if you wanted it to be running in the background, then I think a dubbed version would be fine. If you want to if you're doing something and just want to be listening to it while you're I don't know, cleaning house, what have you, I could see then sticking in a dubbed version. Oh, definitely. I was, I was almost going to say that, yeah. Probably something would trigger your, your hearing if you want to stop and watch something that's happening because you can kind of tell what's exactly. going on without having to look. So I agree with you on that. So now Jonathan talked about the fact that, God, and I'm sure you would probably going to mention this anyway later in the show as far as like announcements, but Godzilla coming to Blu-ray the end of October, October 29th, a couple of days before Halloween, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be wanting to get that set in their hands. There's a little thing called that Barnes & Noble 50% off sale, which happens just a few days later. You and I talked about that, and you, and you questioned whether, would they exclude this from that? I don't think so, because that's a surefire way to generate a lot of sales. I was blown away. I think we had been we had mentioned it, I think, in the episode. It's like, what was taking Criterion so long? They'd had it for a while. Well... We got our answer. They've been holding everything out for this huge box set, which I didn't anticipate. I figured they would be releasing it kind of piecemeal, what have you. I didn't expect all 15 films in one box set. Yeah, I was I was blown away by that announcement. And yeah, you know, I don't always upgrade automatically from, from DVDs to Blu-rays. And a lot of the movies I've got good copies of, but... Some of them I don't, and the the idea of getting it from Criterion, you know you're going to be getting the best picture that we'll probably ever get on these films. And with the original Japanese language, I'm wondering if the American versions will be included. Something tells me no. Uh, um, I but was I was under know. the impression they were, or at least some of them. 
I guess I haven't looked at all of the, the details of the set, but it, that would, you know, some of them at least maybe. I don't know. I'm anticipating that. Uh, that that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be on my Christmas list for sure this year. Definitely at the top of my Christmas list. Thank you, Jonathan, for mentioning that. Thank you for your comments on the episode. Uh, it's always great to hear your voice and, and comments on the show. And don't hesitate to call in again and, and talk about stuff that we had covered, you know, two or three months in the past. Thank you, Jonathan. So should we dig into Fay Ray? Oh, yeah. that didn't sound so good. But, <laughs> dig into, uh, yes, yes. The life should. and career of Fay Ray. How's that? Is Absolutely, that yes. And are you going to preface us with Richard's History Corner? That, that is a good, that's a good start, yes. So Fay Ray was born on September 15th, 1907 in Canada. But I was wondering what happened in the United States in 1907. Mostly because... I don't think we'll ever cover a film from 1907 on this show. That'll be uh, a year that we'll probably never revisit again. So what was happening in 1907? Well, for starters, if you and I were living in 1907, we wouldn't be living because we would have surpassed our life expectancy. U.S. males in 1907, the life expectancy was 45.6 years of age. Females lived a little bit longer, 49.9 years. I don't know. Maybe that's why when you watch old movies... People who are only in their 40s look like they're in their 60s sometimes. I, I guess life was a lot harder back then. And so life expectancy through any variety of health reasons, medical technology, what have you. I was a little shocked that it was that low. UPS was uh, started by two teenagers in Seattle. It was originally called the American Messenger Company. The very first AA battery was invented. The Bank of Italy which would later become Bank of America, opened in San Francisco. The first version of Ben-Hur was released. It was remade again in 1925, featuring, I believe, an uncredited Fay Ray. The more popular and most remembered version from 1959 with Charlton Heston, and then, of course, the 2016 version, which nobody wants to see. Chicago Cubs won the World Series. There were only 8,000 cars in existence and there was only 144 miles of paved roads. Most speed limits were 10 miles per hour. Las Vegas had a booming population of 30. That's a little town that, uh, and it, I guess it didn't probably get much above that until the late 50s when the mob kind of moved in and turned it into a casino. But beyond that, it was just a little white spot in the desert. 18% of households had at least one servant. I was greatly disappointed that no one greeted me at the door when I arrived at Jeff's house this morning, which we are recording in in Classic Horrors Club, Club number two location? I don't know. Enrico Caruso and the United States Marine Corps Band were the most popular bands in music. <laughs> that says a lot. <laughs> Variety published its first film review in 1907, but I don't know what it was. I couldn't find that. One of the most popular films of the day was The Eclipse by Georges Melaise. A few other people who were born in 1907, Cesar Romero, a.k.a. The Joker, John Wayne, Catherine Hepburn, Gene Autry, and Buster Crabbe were all born in the same year that Fay Ray was, 1907. Wow. Huh, I'm kind of surprised for some of those things seem kind of advanced. I would have thought they would have come after 1907, and then other things were a little behind. That's an interesting year. I mean, I was trying to, to come up with some bigger film titles, but really, Ben-Hur was about it. George Melee's, of course, is well-known, but the film titles he had in 1907, none of them were really kind of sticking out to me as much as some of his other films. 
So yeah, I mean, very early days of film. So you got to think 1907, silent films are around, but films are still relatively short at that point. And I don't even know how long Ben-Hur was, but it was, you know, probably, I would say maybe 15 minutes, maybe a couple reels. One and two reels were the average length of films at that time. And a lot of films were sometimes as short as five minutes. Other people scream, and I don't think that, I think my scream is supposed to be a little more, you know, more well-known or appreciated than most screams, but I don't understand that really exactly, but I'll take it if, it, if that serves <laughs> to be something that people can appreciate. Hello to all you monster kids out there. The year was 1933. For the past few years, the horror film had truly grown from the dark beginnings of Germany's Cabinet of Dr. Caligari 13 years before. The winds of expressionist filmmaking blew through to the United States and birthed the universal classics, Dracula and Frankenstein, both in 1931, with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Svengali, The Mummy, Freaks, and so much more following in the short amount of time. It was all leading up to something, something huge. King Kong, in many ways, is the ultimate genre film. It's equal parts horror film, monster movie, science fiction, fantasy, action, romance, and adventure movie. The arrival of the sympathetic Kong, in many ways, was a result of the sympathetic monster in Frankenstein two years before. But it wasn't just the amazing creatures that were brought to life by Willis O'Brien that gave the film a spark. The key to why the film works is one of the most talented, underrated, and absolutely drop-dead gorgeous actresses in Hollywood history, Faye Ray. The second I saw her appear on the screen, I cannot lie, I fell in love. There is an unspeakable beauty about her. Her piercing eyes and facial expressions are recognizable anywhere. Even in her final days, there is no mistaking those beautiful eyes. Her kind voice and reassuring smile, combined with her talented acting, made her a force to be reckoned with. And that scream. That scream will reverberate for the rest of time through the cinematic halls of history. Most people remember her as Anne Darrow from King Kong, but in truth, Fay Ray's career began long before the film and went on for years after the ape fell to his death. She appeared in bit parts in the silent days before being noticed by the famed director Eric von Stroheim at Paramount when he was still having his clout in Hollywood. He cast her as the lead actress in his film, The Wedding March. But unfortunately, Sturheim's tendency to go over budget and over schedule damaged his reputation further, and the film was a box office failure. It was after she left Paramount that she made the films that she is most remembered for today. Dr. X, a terrifying horror film that also boasted the great Lionel Atwill and a creepy two-strip technicolor effect. The Most Dangerous Game, made by the same team as King Kong. The Vampire Bat, again with Lionel Atwill and featuring Dwight Fry. Mystery of the Wax Museum, the original, grittier, pre-code version of House of Wax. Black Moon and The Clairvoyant, which is a very underrated film also starring the great Claude Rains. But for all the great films that she is remembered for, in my opinion, her best performance was in none of these films. It's not a horror film, but she made a movie in 1933, the same year as Kong, entitled Anne Carver's Profession, one of her few starring roles. 
It is a fascinating film for the time as it is a reflection of women's roles in the home and in society. She plays wife to a husband who becomes jealous when her career as a lawyer begins to take off. He decides to leave her and the rest of the film is about the struggles of mixing marriage and careers. She puts in a tour de force performance, especially at the end of the film during her courtroom speech, proving that she was more than just a screen queen. Unfortunately, the film is hard to find, but it does show up on occasion on Turner Classic Movies. I highly recommend it, even to horror fans who only know Fay Ray from King Kong. I have rambled long enough, but without Fay, there would be no Evelyn Anchors, no Veronica Carlson, no Caroline Monroe, no Jamie Lee Curtis, no Marilyn Burns. She will always be my screen queen. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Nick. 1907 is where it all started for uh, actress Faye Ray. Did you collect much on her pre-movie years or anything to go through? I've got a few notes if you don't. I've got a few things, and I'll, I'll let you kind of fill in the gaps. She had five siblings. I had born in, in Canada. She uh, and her family moved to the United States, to Arizona, when her father was in, in search of uh, employment. They then moved to California, and it was there that her parents got divorced. Uh, she was uh, at a young age for her. I'm not sure exactly what age it was. But, of course, being then in, in California and the, uh, the lure of early Hollywood uh, began to beckon, and that's, you know, she was kind of there. That's when it segued into acting and segued into the film industry. When I first came to California, I was 14, and, and just did a few bit parts. When I was 16, I started working with cowboys, and I did two, two reelers and four reelers. Every day, I would, I would pick up a girl named Janet Gaynor. She didn't have a car. My mother helped me get a, an old second-hand car so that I could go to the studio. And um, I would pick her up and take her with me to work at the Hell Road studio. And both of us got just little little bits and pieces to do in uh, better than extra. It was a little bit better than extra, but it was work, you know. And Janet had friends, I think, at Universal. And I, I also made friends with a, a very nice person who, would, who was related to the Lemley people. So it, it made it easy to get established at Universal. Universal was a much bigger studio than Hal Roach was, except that it was, it was very rough looking at that time. It was just like something in the country, way out in the country. But um, you'd have to get up very early in the morning to go to work at Universal because they, they shot everything outside in the country and they depended upon daylight for the lighting. And uh, it was a little bit rough to have to get up at 4.30, I guess it was, uh, to say that the latest you could get up at 4.30. But, um, and they had things called reflectors. That, that would be big square boards that were covered with material that would reflect the sun. And so that would bit into your, your feelings too, your eyes and your, uh, your it took away all the comfort from life, <laughs> to say the least. Then there was a man at the studio 
the leading man was Hoot Gibson. That's quite a name, isn't it? Hoot. Hoot. <laughs> Hoot Gibson. However, it was work and I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed working. I loved being able to have money to give my mother because she needed help, but the family needed help. And, and, and helping was always very important to me. So anyhow, uh, at Universal, I never got beyond doing two or three real movies. And I was very ambitious in my heart. I wanted everything, everything, yeah. Yes, I wanted a beautiful part for myself. Her film debut was in a movie called Gasoline Love. She was 16 years old. That was in 1923. Yeah, and, and you know, talking about her early film roles, I mean, really, I was looking through some of the titles, trying to see anything that really stood out. The Wedding March, of course, uh, Nick mentioned 1928, Eric von Stroheim film, was her first big hit, so to speak. Her most well-known film, I guess, from the silent era, besides Ben-Hur, the 25 version, which I saw many years ago. And it, and it is a really good version. It's not as good as the 59 version with Charlton Heston, but it is uh, certainly a classic. And as again, I believe that she had an uncredited role in that. You know, she was prolific. She was certainly busy. Uh, I think she did have to wait a couple of years after Ca Gas Gasoline Love before she got another film role. But she started getting more and more uh, acting roles and was, you know, really one of the few actresses who was able to transition from silent to sound because that transition killed a lot of careers. A lot of times it, it was all with the voice. I mean, you may look dashing, but if you didn't have the voice, then that would, could be a career killer for you. And uh, a lot of great people didn't make that transition. Sometimes they, they stuck around, but by the early to mid thirties, their careers were done. Uh, sometimes even much quicker than that. Faye Ray was able to adapt, and in fact, you know, as we called her, Hollywood's first scream queen, obviously screaming in a silent film, you didn't have to, right? You could act like it, but you didn't have to have the voice. She had the voice, and that helped her have really the peak of her career being in the, in the early to mid-1930s, and a lot of it was, as you know, Nick said, she was, she was gorgeous, she was very attractive, she had a presence, and, you know, she had the voice. She had the ability to scream, which was what really helped when, you know, when you get to the, the one of the biggest movies she had, you know, King Kong, arguably, I think, the biggest movie she had. Maybe not her best role, as, as Nick suggested, another film there that potentially, you know, is, is his personal favorite. Screaming was a big part of that movie. In genre-related films, which is why we're here, she did quite a few in a short amount of time and most of which are, are considered classics by today's standards. I guess we're here to talk about, you know, are they classics because Fay Ray's in them? Is, are, we, are they more remembered because Fay Ray was in them? Is it because of some of her cast? Is it because of the film itself? And, and I think it kind of varies from film to film. Why do we still talk about these films? Is it really because Fay Ray's in it? Is it because the film itself is just that good? And I think it, it depends on what we're talking about. Got a couple things to add. And so the, the wedding march that you mentioned, that was 1928, her first movie being 1923, about halfway in the middle, 1926, the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers chose 13 young starlets most likely to succeed, and Faye Ray was one of those. 
I found it interesting that, and I bet most people don't know this, she made 32 movies before she even got to Dr. X. So, gosh, do we know what was her total movies, 90, 97? Her most prolific years were 33 and 34. I mean, as you said, she made quite a few films prior to Dr. X, but... In 33 and 34, she made 11 films in each of those years, which back then, you know, the films were made rather quickly. There's a lot of other actors and actresses who could crank out a lot of films in a short amount of time. But, you know, 11 is a lot to do in the course of, of one year. How big of a role she had in those films, you know, 33 and 34 was at the peak of her career as well. So... I mean, you're you're thinking that even if she's a you know playing a supporting role, which you know I think, for example, Mysteries of the Wax Museum. When we get to that, really, I think she has more of a supporting role in that one rather than being the lead actress. Even then, though, she you had to to dedicate yourself to to this film, and and you're talking basically making one movie a month for the entire year, and how much downtime she had probably not a lot. Uh, she was going from one project to the next to the next. And I think it's interesting when we get to that point is, is she cranked out so much work, but then how kind of quickly her star fell after that. I mean, she kept making films under the early 40s, but, you know, she was at the peak and then it just yeah. seemed like it, it dropped off. And, yeah. and I know we'll talk about that when we get to it. But Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I've found a, a comment on that that both angers me and and confuses me, but we'll get to that. I'm, I'm glad you found something because I was trying to, to do some research and I couldn't find anything. It's like, what happened? You know, sometimes it's a scandal. Sometimes, uh, you know, the, the actress or, or, or actor just decide to, to pull back. You know, sometimes there's, you know, they're fighting demons, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Colin Clive, for example, you would think that after he had done Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein, his career would have you know, soared. But no, I mean, alcoholism, you know, did him in and he died really, what, a few years after Bride of Frankenstein. That's an interesting comment. I don't think I'll play this clip because it's really long. But in one of those interviews I watched, she talked about making these Westerns with the actors and she'd have she'd smell liquor on their breath because these again, they were churning them out. They had these tall, I don't know if they were good looking or not, masculine men that were playing cowboys. And she talked about having to smell the alcohol in their breaths because they'd come having been drinking. She mentioned growing up, never in her family, any alcohol drinking at all, not even wine. And I got the impression that, you know, she maybe even never drank herself once she got out from her family. But so it definitely wasn't alcoholism or, or drug abuse that affected her. Yeah. And I was, I didn't mean yeah, to imply I, that that's what it was. I was just giving an example of sometimes that that's, that's the answer, right? It's like, well, why did we, why did so-and-so disappear, right. you know, right. or, you hear the the Hollywood tragedies of like you know Thelma Todd, for example, passing away at a very young age. You know, Faye Ray continued to to make films. You know, although there was a gap, she made films in, into the mid '60s, and then there was like a 15 year gap. But I mean, she lived until 2004, the incredible age of 96. Everything I found, she didn't she didn't battle the the proverbial demons that so many other actresses succumb to, and I think that probably says a lot about her character. And honestly, the the lack of alcohol drinking had to have been in her advantage because alcohol was incredibly prevalent in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s. And a lot of actors and actresses did succumb to alcoholism when they couldn't make that transition from silent star to, to sound star and their careers came screeching to a halt if 
you don't have that plan B. Well, what do I do now? And you were making big films and all of a sudden now you're not. That can be incredibly hard for someone who's had all this fame to all of a sudden have it snatched away. And, you know, with an actor and actor, sometimes they don't have a, what do I do next? And a lot of them did turn to the bottle. That so probably played to her advantage. She had 132 films to her credit. So if you consider that uh, like a, uh, let me do my math here, a fifth of her films, uh, between a fourth and a fifth of her films were done before Dr. X and this little cluster of, of horror movies she made. So that's a lot. And that's before she was, what, 25 years old when she made King Kong? Yeah. So uh, hard-working actress. Don't go to the camera. Let the camera come to you. And I thought that was good advice and I would take it myself because uh, if you're doing something that you believe in and it's honest and true in your own imagination, the camera will find it. The fiction is that you have to work for the camera. You have to do something special for the camera. You don't. You just have to be true to the scene and the camera will find you. The camera find you, I said. And I meant that. I still do mean that. Dr. X, 1932. Um, First National Pictures was the company that released it. I can't honestly tell you if I've seen anything else from First National Pictures. August 27th, 1932 is the release date. You've got Lionel Atwill playing Dr. Jerry Xavier. Lee Tracy is playing reporter Lee Taylor, uh, who is investigating the, the mysterious happenings in this uh, particular film. And then Fay Ray is playing uh, Joan or Joanne, depending on what point you watch it in the movie, the daughter of Lionel Atwill. And this film, the first thing you're going to immediately notice when you fire it up is it is a two-strip Technicolor film. It was an experimental thing that were being done in films in the early 1930s. And, of course, the volatility of, of early Technicolor films is that a lot of the, the Technicolor versions, of course, would dissolve. The, the film stock would dissolve over time. So the fact that we still have a copy of, of this film is amazing in itself because they transferred the film onto a, a film stock that, that wasn't as uh, volatile and wouldn't... As you've seen, if you've seen any of those film preservation things, Technicolor films were notorious for either catching on fire or turning into a goo, and that wasn't the case, thankfully, with this film. But it was lost. The Technicolor version was lost for many, many years, and it wasn't rediscovered until 1978 after the death of Jack Warner. Uh, it was discovered in his private collection. There was a black-and-white version of this film that was available, and the thing is, though, is that it is not an exact copy of this movie. The black and white version and the Technicolor version, there are some differences. Certain scenes are filmed from different angles, and there's certain elements, nothing major, but there's minor elements that are present in the black and white film that aren't seen in the Technicolor film. For many years, if you watch this movie, you watch the black and white version, but once the Technicolor version came around, all of a sudden, the black and white version seems to get shelved, and now the Technicolor version is the only one that's out there. I'd love to be able to have the black and white version available so we could kind of compare and contrast. The immediate thing that, that yeah, I thought of this film is that I 
didn't really care for the two-strip Technicolor version. I think it gives a really washed-out look to the film. There's a few scenes towards the end, towards the climax, where the color kind of comes into play. But be before that, I think it just it washes out the film. I'd love to see a, a good, crisp, black-and-white version because the Technicolor just doesn't... I don't think it enhances the film. Personal preference... And I think a, a crisper black and white version would be would be perhaps a lot more enjoyable. Part of the commentary I listened to on Dr. X, they were talking about that. And the, they even will point out through the course of the movie the scenes that were different in the black and white version versus the color. It's got to exist somewhere because it was the copy that was available until the late 70s. So all the thought was, well, the Technicolor version is better. So we'll just it's probably sitting on a shelf somewhere. Hmm. Which version, which DVD version of this did you watch? I don't know. Uh, it's one I had watched in the past. You, you said we might mention our experiences watching it. I had watched this way. It was one of the first movies I watched for the Classic Horse Club blog, and I just did a little mini review of it. But I remember at that time I was trying to go through like chronologically a list of, of major movies, and I saw it then. That's the only time I've seen it until recently I watched it with the commentary. So is it part of that Hollywood's Legends of Horror box set? Do you have that? I don't have any idea. Oh, I guess I didn't finish my answer to that. So I had had it, I burned it however I got it, and okay. I watched it this time on my computer. So what, I don't remember what version. Let's see, my version was one of those I recorded off Turner Classic Movies Many, many years ago, I think it was like almost 15 years ago that I, I recorded it. It was a good copy, though. I mean, I, I think probably, you know, as good a copy as, as a, that's available on that box set, which is the only time it's been released. It hasn't been, uh, it was never released by itself, nor has it been released uh, on Blu-ray. And that box set, of course, comes with a lot of other great films. Uh, Mark of the Vampire, I think, what else is on that thing? Um Mad Love, I think, uh, Mask of Fu Manchu, uh, what's the other one with Lionel Barrymore, the doll movie from like 38. Devil Doll? Devil Doll is on that as well. It's out of print, so if you want to trace this down, I don't know if this is on YouTube. I think that it, you might be able to find it on YouTube. The box set itself is out of print. You're going to pay about 50 bucks for it, which is not much more than the price was when it came out. So it's a great box set. I had all the, I have all the movies in it, which is why I never got the box set. The copy that's out there is is good. I just think the black and white would be better. I have a couple of tidbits to add since I did watch that commentary. This was the first modern film, supposedly, meaning the first horror film that took place in a current contemporary setting. Uh, that kind of surprises me, but that's what the the commentator claimed. It, as you mentioned, the first horror film in color. They really, this was in some ways a product of the success of Frankenstein at Universal, which would have been the year before. And they talk a lot about how Universal's formula for horror was like 80% horror, 20% comedy. So that's where you get like Uno O'Connor and things like that. But they decided to flip it and they went 80 in favor of comedy, 20 in favor of of horror and this originally the script was bought for Bella Lugosi to be in and I don't recall why he didn't um, actually end up starring in it it based on a play the terror by Howard W Comstock and Alan C Miller and yeah this it's more of a, a movie about how a murder is solved versus the you know gory details of the murder itself they 
actually at the time referred to it as a newspaper thrill comedy instead of a horror film. I'm going to challenge the first modern day horror film yeah. of the time period because there's one that's coming to my mind. Now, maybe that's available to us to watch if they'd added that. Mm. Uh, the Cat Creeps, which came out in 1930. Now, that film is lost, so we can't see it. But that's a remake of Cat and the Canary. And from the clips that I've seen of it, that there's a, there are a couple of clips that exist in like a promotional film or something. I can't remember is it. I can't remember which company puts out, but there's there's like a couple of clips that exist of that. I think. But I mean, my thought is that it, that was set in, in modern time. Now, again, I can't see the film, so I can't say for sure. But I, you know that you know. Other than that, I'm trying to think of other films around that time period. I guess Murders in the Rue Morgue is technically set in the 1800s. Frankenstein Dracula could be argued how, you know, are they, is it really set in the 1800s? Cause I don't know if there's ever a time stamp that's definitively put on either film, but it's, I guess it's kind of implied that it's not contemporary times, but I don't know. You don't see, I don't know. I guess there could be an argument for that because I mean, the Frankenstein films as the series goes on, it's like, where, what time frame do they take place in? And is it really 30 years later? I don't know. So there could be some legitimate claim to that. Yeah, I I, I'm suspicious, like I said, but uh, also maybe I dropped the word. Maybe it was the first modern Hollywood horror film or, I don't know, big studio. I don't know. But still, I, I would agree one of the earliest in, in, in that. Bela Lugosi, yeah, he could have played that role. I mean, Lionel Atwell is great in, in it, but there was nothing. Lionel Atwell is an actor who plays a great mad scientist, but... I don't think that there's anything specific about his performances that that couldn't potentially be played by someone else who is like like Lugosi who would go on to play you know multiple mad scientists and I think Lugosi would have been able to 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 do well in that part. I don't know that he would have made the film bigger or better by his performance, but he, he could have done it. Yeah. So what about Fay Ray in this? What about her role and her performance? How do you feel about that? I hope I'm not misspeaking here. You'll correct me, I'm sure, if I am. But it seems like her role wasn't that significant. No, I agree. I, I mean, agree. It, it, it's I, a supporting role. It's, yeah. it's She's the lead actress in the movie, but she's not, in my mind, in this film, I mean, she she's not a starring, starring role. I mean, I think Lee Tracy as the reporter has a bigger role than she does. She's a supporting actress. She does good in the role. Her, our first chance to, I guess, see her in that damsel in distress, scream queen kind of role. Oh, that was the the thing I also didn't mention. This was her first scream in a horror film. Yeah, I mean, so I think she, you know, that, you know, she contributes to that fashion. I think she does incredibly well. But, yeah, not a, not a huge role for her. She's a supporting actress. And I'm going to say this a couple of times, and, and, and I'm sure that, that some people might get stirred up a little bit by this. Aside from the scream, I don't think that... I mean, I think that, that Faye Ray's character could have been played by maybe another actress at the time, and it, it, we wouldn't miss Faye Ray in this film. I'm not going to... There's certainly other films that we're going to talk about where Faye Ray would certainly be missed. And this film, aside from the scream, if you take that out, I think another actress could have played her role 
and would have done just as good as Fay Ray did. Nothing that she did in the role necessarily made it definitively hers. She would be better in other films. And I guess that, you know, it's it's I enjoy the film and I enjoy her performance in it, but she's not quite there yet as far as the the screen queen and she did better in other films. And I'm going to say something really stupid. If you haven't watched a lot of Fay Ray movies, like I had not for a while, and you only know her from King Kong, she was a natural brunette. She wasn't really a blonde. And you can see it, of course, in this colorized version. It looks a little slightly reddish. But I, I even forget that sometimes until we start watching these other movies that she's, she's a brunette. I, that, that's true. Yeah, I mean, and then sometimes, I mean, you have to kind of do because you're used to, to the image that she had in King Kong. And sometimes if there's another actress, I was thinking, you know, initially I kind of had to, to do a double take. I was like, well, you know, that doesn't, is that fair, right? That doesn't look, uh, specifically Black Moon, which I just watched last night, when I'm seeing the character of what Juanita in that film my first thought was, well, that's not Faye Ray, is it? I had to do a double take initially. And then, of course, once Faye Ray came on screen, I'm like, okay, well, that's definitely Faye Ray. But there was a, a question for a moment. And that happens today with actresses that look very similar and you're used to them at a particular hair color or, or particular look. And when they take on a different appearance and they kind of blend in with the other actress in that film... Sometimes you have to take a step back and say, well, who's who? And that was, I didn't have that necessarily with Dr. X because there wasn't really another actress. And But that did happen in, in a couple of the other films where I had to do a double take. I'm glad you said that. I had that particular problem with the clairvoyant and we'll talk about it yes, when we get there. But absolutely. I watched a horrible print of it. So that was very difficult for me to see that. The Most Dangerous Game, made the same year, 1932? Yes, September 16th, 1932, RKO Pictures. And this movie, for me, is is like a second viewing. I've only seen this movie once before, and I'm not convinced that I was dedicated my, my attention to the film when I was watching, because there's a lot in this movie that I missed the first go-around, specifically the... Uh, Zaroff's Chamber of Horrors, for example, I, I didn't remember any of that. So I'm, I'm convinced that I must have had this playing in the background and I was doing other stuff. So almost a first time viewing for me, and I really enjoyed this movie. You've got Joel McRae as Bob Rainsford, the sole survivor of a, I guess, you know, uh, he was a big game hunter, right? And, and they're on a ship, and one of the other guys orders the, the captain to go into, I guess, you know, rocky terrain, and the ship ends up crashing, and everyone on board dies, and he's the last man surviving, and he makes it to an island, which I, made me think of the island of Dr. Moreau. I kind of expected Moreau to pop up in this. Fay Ray plays Eve Trowbridge, who is, of course, a survivor from another mishap and she's been on the island for a little while with her brother martin played by robert armstrong who is indeed very different here than he is in king kong because he's perpetually drunk in this movie and leslie banks plays uh the evil zaroff i don't know he wasn't a doctor but i always want to say dr zaroff or mad professor zaroff 
this movie was featured a lot of the same sets as King Kong because it was being made at the same time. Even though like King Kong, I think a lot of the King Kong stuff was filmed first. This movie ended up being released first because it had virtually no special effects where King Kong took a little longer to produce. So Faye Ray and Robert Armstrong went from working one film to the next almost, even though the others were released for, for both of them. The one thing that caught my attention was on this movie, of course, this is a, a theme that would be used many, many times before. Original story by Richard Connell, the man-hunting-man theme. And the running time on this seemed really short at 63 minutes. I thought, wow, this, even for then, this doesn't seem like a cheapy, low-budget, poverty-row flick. Why was it only 63 minutes? Well, it was originally 78 minutes. This is pre-code. There was a lot of things that shocked the audience. I mean, it's not pre-code, but it was almost treated as such. The film was much more graphic when it was initially shown to audiences. The Chamber of Horrors, where we we get a little bit of that. We see a head floating in a jar. We see a head mounted, like you would have a you know a, a rhino's head on the wall, but. There were, in the original version, there were prolonged shots. There were more heads in the jars than just the one we saw. There were more stuffed creatures and people. There was a, uh, a stuffed, emaciated sailor that looked very horrific. There was a lot of dialogue of Zaroff depicting the deaths of the people in the room, kind of bragging about how, how they, they died that was originally shown to audiences, and audiences recoiled in, in horror. It was way too much for them in 1932. And the studios, you know, and the director said, well, we've got to cut that out. And so it ended up cutting 15 minutes of the film out. Hmm. So it did have a more traditional running length of, you know, roughly 80 minutes. But now, of course, it comes across at just a little over an hour. So it seems like it's just a really quick film. But it wasn't a low-budget film. It just... They didn't have extra footage to put in, so cutting all that that more horrific stuff out, you know, left it, you know, barely over an hour, and you know that footage probably hit the cutting room floor and it's gone forever. I'd love to see that stuff. That particular scene, the Chamber of Horrors scene, caught me off guard. I didn't stood and remember any of that. That was even what we saw was pretty horrific for 1932, and still is by today's standards. I mean. Man hunting man is 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 in itself a, a pretty horrific idea, and for 1932, yeah, I can imagine, and certainly the original version, I can imagine that people would be very very shocked at that. I loved the movie though. I, I I've seen this theme in multiple other films, but as I said, this was virtually a first time viewing for me because I just don't remember a lot of it, and I really really liked it. Yeah, I like this movie too. I. I saw it the first time only a few years ago. I got it on Criterion, uh, probably during a half-price sale. You know, had not seen it before that, was confident enough in what I knew about it that, that I would want to have it, and I do. I like it very much. I've watched it a couple times. I did not watch it uh, previous to us recording this uh, again. So I, I'm going to ask the same question. Uh, what about Fay Ray in this movie? Now, granted, I, I said I've seen it a couple times. I like it. I couldn't tell you the first thing about Fay Ray in this movie. So is she again more of a supporting character? Right. I, she's she's the only actress. Yeah, yeah, I mean Armstrong's her brother. I mean she's the femme fatale of the film, so to speak. So in that regard, 
there's more focus on her. You've got a smaller cast uh, as opposed to, say, Dr. X, where you've got a lot of other characters and things happening. And she was certainly in the background of that film. She's certainly more in the forefront here. I, I like her performance in this one. She's, again, playing the proverbial damsel in distress, the, the screen queen. But I think because you're dealing with a smaller cast, her performance is, is just a lot better in this one. Again, the question would be, you know, could another actress step into this role? Possibly. I don't know. Again, trying to think who would be able to do that, I don't know. Not as easily as with Dr. X, where I think another actress could easily have fit in that role and it would have been fine. Because Faye Ray did have a presence about her, and it's a lot more visible in this film. Again, a better role for her than, than Dr. X. And so in that regard... Could someone else have stepped in? Possibly, but it would it would be a little bit tougher. I mean, she did a good job in this one, I felt, and, and, and she's had more time, opportunity to shine. But she is clearly still a supporting character. The, the movie is all about Zaroff and and, uh, and Rainsford, and you know she plays certainly a part in the climax of the film, and she gets her little happy ending. But yes, she's a lead actress, but she doesn't it doesn't feel like it's a lead role. Yeah, so my, my comments on that are limited. Do you have anything else on that? No, I think, you know, again, it's, it's, it certainly is easier to find. It's on the Criterion Collection, so you're going to get a fantastic print. What I saw was a, uh, a, a print off YouTube, actually. Surprisingly, I don't have this one in my collection. I thought that I did, but I don't. So I do want to add the Criterion uh, one to my collection because this is a film I really enjoyed. The, even the copy on YouTube is actually a pretty good copy, so... You know, this is a film that is supposedly public domain, but I, I cry foul on that. There's sometimes these films are listed as public domain, but I'm like, you know what? If Alpha Video or Mill Creek didn't release it at some point, <laughs> it's probably not public domain because they went through and released every possible film that was public domain, uh, and, and certainly Mill Creek on multiple sets. If this was public domain, it would have been released by them. And the same thing goes for, for Alpha Video, which I, you know, to the best of my knowledge, neither one of them ever did. This movie and the fact that, you know, Criterion does, of course, release films that are public domain. You know, Carnival of Souls, for example, pops up on public domain sets, certainly Night of the Living Dead. So, yes, sometimes they, they do dabble in that. Not hardly ever, but it does happen. This particular one, I don't believe, has ever went into public domain. So, good copy out there. And uh, certainly is, is a film, if you haven't seen it, definitely worth checking out. I, I, I would recommend this one. One of my favorites of all the Fay Ray films, that because uh, I did make it through everything that we're covering, this would be, I'm sure at the end maybe we'll talk about this, but it, this, this would be maybe my third favorite hmm. of all the Fay Ray films. Well, before we get into 1933, where she made 11 movies, I just want to make a note, and I, I hope you're in sync with me. I think you are. Making 11 films in a year, there's some overlap. You know, films might have been shot, and then another one released. I thought we would go in order of release date. Is that what you've got? Yes. Like, okay. Yeah. You know, Vampire Bat, we're going to talk about next. It was released January 21st, 1933. Mystery of the Wax Museum, the next movie, had already been filmed, and because of the special effects work in that, Vampire Bat was actually made and released before Mystery of the Wax Museum came out. Just a few weeks, uh, well, about almost a month, February 18th, 
was the release date for Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah, Vampire Bat, Majestic Pictures. Out of all the films that we're covering, I mean, Vampire Bat is very definitively public domain. It is a, it's a cheapy film that was cranked out. It's, I have not seen the Film Detective Blu-ray edition. And that's what I watched. Okay. What was the print like on that? It was very good. In fact, uh, I'll be writing about this in a couple weeks on the blog, but it does not look like uh, cheapy, you know, the way you just okay. described it, except a couple of scenes, nighttime, outdoors, very fuzzy, but otherwise it looks very good. And one of the reasons that I learned in researching it is they actually got to use sets from Universal that made it look more substantial than it, it was. It looks better. To me, it looked better than just a cheapy... I, I agree. It never looked like a... I guess I should say, there was always this impression that there was there was a better film lurking under the murky prints that were available of this movie. And my copy was recorded off Turner Classic, again, probably 15 years ago. And... It's, you know, even for Turner Classics, you know, they've got standards, but occasionally they play movies that are, you know, of lesser quality. It it, it looks like a public domain film because it's the, the print is not the best and the, the quality isn't the best and, and the audio is not the best. So I wondered if that Blu-ray was, was a... Yeah, it does not it look like, like a public yeah. domain to me. The other thing is the incredible cast. I mean, you don't usually see that many well-known people. Absolutely, in. yeah. You've got Lionel Atwell playing Dr. Otto von Neiman. You've got Fay Ray as Ruth, Bur uh, was it Burton or Berlin? Uh, neither. It Burton. was, uh, I forget, but it's it's an odd one. Wow, okay. So I just totally screwed that up. So <laughs> Fay Ray playing unknown female lead. Uh, Melvin Douglas playing Carl Brettschneider. Familiar face Lionel Belmore is one of the, the townspeople. And you got Dwight Fry in, in a fantastic role yeah. as Hermann Glebe. Yeah, I loved seeing him. Of course, you know, we've seen him in other films. He's he's classic for being in Dracula and, and, and the original Frankenstein. I almost think, you know, his role here is certainly rivals those performances. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think of Derek's question on Monster Kid Radio for the classic five, you know, which do you prefer, Dwight Fry as Fritz or Renfield? I'd throw uh, Herman in as that. I think it's equally as good. You've got good stuff in both those films. I mean, his his laugh in, in Dracula's is always, you know, that <laughs> is always great. You know, some of his the scenes, especially with uh, in, in Frankenstein, where he's like getting the brain and the scenes where, you know, he's he's got the fire and he's taunting the, the monster. Those are great. I don't know. Here, though, he... he he seems to be holding his own in, in great fashion, and, and I had forgotten. Great cast. I really want to see the Blu-ray on this because that was my only complaint about this movie. This was a fun film. I thought, you know, Faye Ray, she's good in this movie. I don't know. What do you think of Faye Ray? Well, and, I'll, I'll, and, let, I'll let you go down that path first. And I apologize. I was right and wrong about her name. It is Burton, but it's spelled oddly. It's B-E-R-T-I-N. So I believe you said Burton. You would be correct. Okay. It's just not the typical... B-U-R-T-O-N. Okay, then I'm, so, I wasn't so I as off base. So I, I could be wrong, and I hope I'm not mixing these up, because again, we watch so many movies, I, I start to get them confused. But I actually thought, starting out, this was a more substantial role for her. I thought, oh, you know, this is great. She has a little more agency or whatever. But, you know, by the end, she ends up tied up in a chair, 
you know, the victim, but so does the, the male lead. So, you know, I, I don't know. I liked her in this. It, it stands out to me. I remember her in this where I don't really in the others. Yeah, I mean, having seen the, the most dangerous game, gosh, she probably has a bigger role in this than the most dangerous game. That said, for some reason, I liked her in the most dangerous game better. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's because there's so much other stuff going on. Whereas in the most dangerous game, you're, you've got a small cast. And so her performance is able to stand out better in that film. Whereas with here, I mean, she's kind of, you know, competing a little bit with Melvin Douglas, a little bit with Lionel Atwill, a little bit with Dwight Fry, the actress who, who played the, the kind of the comic relief character. Uh, I didn't write down her name, but the the uh, the older character, the older lady, the poor the man Zuno. Yes, I was I was thinking <laughs> the same thing. There's a lot of, of great cast that she's having to kind of take not not like fight for screen time, but I mean she's sharing the screen with a lot of great cast in this one. Most dangerous game. It, you're, you're really there was three other people that she's sharing time with, and even you could almost say two and a half because Robert Armstrong doesn't have a huge role in that film. I thought that Vampire Bat, her role was probably more forgettable. I kind of felt the same way. I kind of thought, you know, at first it's like, wow, she's she's going to be more substantial. But she does kind of fall into that damsel in distress, scream queen mode, which I think she was better than that, uh, or could have been better than that in this film. It just seemed like she started up at a higher point and, and did kind of take a step back as the film wore on. One more thing about it not looking like public domain, the director, Frank R. Strayer, he, he moves the camera a little bit. There's one really interesting shot where a character comes in like from the camera. We, you know, we see his back as he walks forward. So it, it's, it's a well-made film. All of this said about how great it looks and how good the cast is, I don't actually care for it that much. I don't know why, but when stacked up to all these others, and again, we'll talk about our rankings at the end, it's next to last for me. There's there's the visual look to it, the great cast. Let's talk about the script, though. Yes. That's where the film falters. The film could be so much better if it had a better script. You've got a lot of, of build-up, and I, I always feel like the payoff in this movie, the climax, is, is anticlimactic. It's oh, definitely. Like, wow, we had such a great build-up, and I always, again, thought, I think there's more here with a better print and it sounds like we get, you know, you get that and it probably even makes the, the watching a better print probably even makes the, the climax even more anticlimactic that you're just kind of like, well, I was expecting something a bit more. And I think that's where I think Lionel Atwill does good in this film, but I, at times I feel like he's kind of phoning it in maybe a little bit. He's just well, kind of, do you think they're doing that though to like throw us off? I mean, Spoilers, I guess. Dwight Fry, he's the red herring. I mean, I never thought for a minute he was really the the killer, but and and I naturally thought, oh well, it's Lionel Atwell because that's the role he usually plays. You yeah, know? I just kind of assumed that. But the reveal is very anticlimactic, and you know, it's not just really clear what he's doing. I mean, he's got that thing in a tank, and the the blood is feeding it. But what's it for? What's he trying to do? I yeah, I. I didn't like yeah. the way they wrapped it up. They no. kind of squandered the goodwill that had built up. Yeah, it, it, the script falls apart there, the final act. And, and I, I, was, I thought the same thing. It's like, what was the purpose behind all this? The big, you know, and it, I don't know. It's just like there's a lot of 
a lot of visual eye candy at times, but the, the payoff isn't there. So I'm, I'm thinking too, where does this rank in, amongst my films? And I'm thinking, ah, uh, it's not at the bottom for me, but you know, it's it's probably uh, probably next to last. Yeah, I would probably put this above one other film that we'll talk about, but you know, yeah, it's it's probably next to last. Anything else about it? You mentioned how we can get it. Um, that yeah, that Blu-ray is the way to go for sure. Yeah, I mean, you can find a lot of of copies of this out there. Um, something I do want to talk about though. My first time viewing this. We talked about this before we recorded. I'm sure somebody else out there, because I know I, you re remembered when I mentioned the words matinee at the Bijou. Uh, this was a great PBS show, circa 1980, that ran 90 minutes. And it was like a, like you, in 1930s, 40s, going into a movie theater on a Saturday afternoon. Back then, for five, ten cents, you could get a whole afternoon's entertainment. You go in, you get a cartoon, a short subject, a chapter serial. And then you get two movies, news. I bought newsreels, all these other things you get. It's a whole afternoon at the at the movies for five ten cents. If I was a kid in the thirties and forties, that's where I would have been, like every Saturday, because that was the idea of the chapter serial, right? It like it lures you to come back the following week because it ends in a big cliffhanger, and it's a thirteen, fourteen, fifteen part story. So Matinee at the Bijou was a modern day kind of recreation of that with great theme song, and I would watch that every Saturday afternoon on PBS. And Vampire Bat was one of the films they covered in the first season. And I remember even having an audio recording of this film. I used to record Star Trek on audio cassettes, but I would occasionally record movies, and I had an audio recording of The Vampire Bat. How I enjoyed listening to it, because so much is visual, but... I remember having that and just and listening to it time and time again because I didn't have a VCR back then, and that was my way to relive this movie. And I, I loved it mostly because I loved Matinee at the Bijou, and they didn't always do horror movies. They did a wide variety of films, and this was one of the few times they did a full-on horror film. And I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I'm watching you know PBS on a Saturday afternoon at Matinee at the Bijou, and they got the vampire bat. Yeah, it was a little edited, but not much. I just that's my remembrance of this film. So I have some nostalgic remembrances that maybe make it a little more enjoyable for me than, than for you, but not much. It's still, you know, towards the bottom of the list. But anyway, that was my first time watching it way back, way back when. That's a good memory. I don't have anything um, nostalgically attached to this one. So that's kind of cool. Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yes. Gosh, this, this is a fun one. Uh, Warner Brothers... Another two-strip Technicolor film, another film that was made in black and white and color. The black and white version is slightly different than the color. Another one that was lost, the, the Technicolor version was lost for quite a few years before being discovered in Jack Warner's private collection. This one, you know, this movie was rediscovered in color in, in the late 70s. And I watched this on television like 81-82 on the creature feature, uh, Friday night Cre or Saturday night creature feature with Cremation Mortem. And I remember the print they had was a bad color print. Most of the film, it looked black and white. Every once in a while, color would kind of seep through. And I remember Cremation talking about it as we get to the final act, saying, 
you're going to see some color sequences here that you maybe been fading in and out of the film. And she kind of explained that it was the poor print or whatever. But I was kind of amazed that 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 the color print had been rediscovered maybe four years earlier, and it was already being played on television. But it was a poor, you know, copy of it. That kind of surprised me. But I vividly remember that watching it, you know, in color because I remember it was like. During the film, I would it's like, am I seeing color? No, I'm not. Maybe yes, but then that final act, that final scene, the color was much more vibrant compared to the rest of the film, where it was just every once in a while you're kind of like a hint of color would seep through. Again, I don't really care for the the two strip Technicolor, but it's much more visible in this film than in Dr. X. The, the payoff, I think, is better, especially when you get to the final act. It still comes across as a little bit washed to me, but I think it, it's it's used more effectively here than, than Dr. X. I love this movie. I don't know. I must have seen it on Turner. It must have been on the DVR. I do not have it. I couldn't find one to rewatch, um, so I guess I lied. No, I didn't admit to watching all of them, so... Um, <laughs> Is it available? Because this is one I definitely want to own. This is this is uh, I, this puzzles me. It has never been released on its own. The only time it's been released was as a extra on House of Wax. Ah, I do have it on that. Then I remember that. So it, but yeah, it's 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 just an extra. I mean, and I think you get a little some verbiage on the cover. I mean, because it's House of Wax, been surprised he's on the cover. It's the old snap case, is what I've got. And it's, you know, plus, you know, 1933's Mr. of the X Museum. And it's on, it gets its own side of the disc. You know, it's a flip disc, but it's an extra. And and this film has never been, it hasn't, it's not available on its own. It's not available on Blu-ray. And I'm like, how has this film never been given a, a, an official release on its own? And you know, House of Wax is still available. I don't think it's fallen out of print, uh, surprisingly, that you can still order it for about $10 on Amazon. Well, I say that it's available. It could be from third-party sellers, but they're selling it for ten bucks, which means that you know it's it's still fairly readily available. Because if it was out of print and Vincent Price, they'd throw a crazy price tag on it. It's out there. It's just oddly enough doesn't get a lot of attention on its own, and I, that puzzles me. I don't know why. Poor Fay Ray, she's she's good, but she definitely takes a backseat to Glenda Farrell. I mean, this is Glenda Farrell's movie. The first time I watched it, that's what shocked me. I knew, oh, Fay Ray's in it. You know, I expected her to be the lead, the main character, but this is kind of like Dr. X, where it's more about the mystery and, and solving it than it is the horrific, although the conclusion is just well, it's Faye, amazing. Yeah, Fay Ray gets second billing in this movie over Glenda Farrell, which I think is a travesty. Glenda Farrell was so much better in this movie. Again, Faye Ray is good, and we'll talk about that, but Glenda Farrell deserved to be billed over Faye Ray. This is one of those cases where Faye Ray had a bigger name than Glenda Farrell did. And so, you know, Glenda Farrell had to to, to take billing under Faye Ray, which I think is, is was wrong, because I think her performance is much better in this movie. And for those who may not have heard it the million times I've said it before, Glenda Farrell is from my hometown of Enid, Oklahoma. I, I figured you'd be mentioning <laughs> And something. I'm very proud of our own Glenda Farrell. She's fantastic. The morgue set for this was actually the laboratory set from Dr. X, which was interesting because I saw that little tidbit, but I'm like, well, Dr. X wasn't a Warner Brothers film. So I don't know if, was it First National Pictures was the Dr. X studio? I don't know if that was... 
maybe bought by Warner's or how that set managed to go from one company to the next. I don't know. That could be one of those little trivia things that could be wrong. But I saw that and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Of course, you got Lionel Atwill as Ivan Igor. <laughs> and the, he's the, the the resident mad scientist. He's the, the Vincent Price role uh, of, of the uh, Wax Museum world. Ray plays Charlotte Duncan and Glenda Farrell plays the intrepid newspaper reporter Florence Dempsey. I'm going to jump to the end here because I just one thing about Glenda Farrell's character. She's kind of like hanging out with this one guy for most of the film and she's like butting heads with the editor. And then in the final like three seconds of the film, will you marry me? Yes. <laughs> and they embrace. You get that in a lot of films, yeah. but never so out of the blue and so quick. And Carla is all about happy endings, and she's sitting there, and then the movie ends, and she says, wait a minute, back that up. She says, you know, what happened? She says, how did that come up? I said, I don't know. I said, that sometimes you can kind of see it. That one threw me. I was like, where did that come from? I don't know. That, that I had to laugh at that. I was like, that just really came out of the clear blue. But it's, again, she gets the final scene. Faye Ray doesn't. You know, I, I just, I feel bad for Glenda Farrell because she should have gotten more recognition for this film. I think she was great in it. Faye Ray, she was good, again, playing the damsel in distress role, and she's, and she's she's screaming. This is probably, for the role that she had, I think probably better as a scream queen than she had in, say, certainly better than Dr. X, certainly better than Vampire Bat probably as good as what we got in the most dangerous game i would i would i would say for playing that that scream queen role but again I, I wish we would have seen more of her in this movie it seems like yeah she's the top billed actress but she's a supporting actress in it and 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 i wish we would have got to see more from her i have an update for you first national pictures was the production company of dr x that is a company that was controlled by Warner Brothers. Ah, and okay. Warner Brothers released it. There you so, go. So, all in the family. There we go. And we don't even have to take care of that in the next No, episode. I'm so excited. That's I, how good we are. Yes. We don't even wait now. We, Although I already have a list though, of old business for next <laughs> time. So, In any case, I mean, what did you think of Fay Ray's performance in, the, in this movie? Totally overshadowed by Glinda Farrell. I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't, don't really know what to say about it. I hate to say this, but... It, her role it was like her performance was like serviceable. It was there. Could it have been played by another actress? I think yes. This this was one where Fay Ray, because she's clearly supporting role, I think it could be played by somebody else. Maybe the the screaming part, maybe that that damsel in distress in the final act might be very definitively her at that time period. But the rest of the film, her performance is is almost lost in the shadows at times, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, not a bad performance, so certainly not. Faye Ray is great, but she wasn't given a lot to do in, in this particular film. I'll say this again. I you know, the, the Technicolor aspect is good in the final act. I'd love to see the black and white version of this. I'd love to see a good, sharp, crisp version of it. The color is, is is certainly comes into play with the the, the melting wax and, and the, the reveal of Ivan Igor, but uh, other than that, uh, the the fire sequence I guess I should say was great in the first part of the film. That 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 fire was great. It's good to see that. 
aside from those two scenes where the color really comes into play, the rest of the time, I think it kind of washes the film out a little bit. And it, and it'd be maybe cool to see a crisp black and white version within those two color sequences thrown in, you know, cause you do get that in some other films. Uh, was it the death kiss by which uh, with Bela Lugosi where, when the gun fires, you hear, you see the flame coming out of the gun, which I always thought was kind of weird, but cool, cool visual. I don't know. It'd be kind of cool to see a good, crisp, clear black and white version with some color sequences added into this one. Yeah. I, you know, Mr. The Wax Museum is a classic of the films that, that we're talking about. It, it, it ranks up there for me as probably number two probably behind obviously King Kong is going to be be tops but is is Mr. the Wax Museum number 2 because of Faye Ray's performance? I no, it's not. It's it's because the movie is really good. Lionel Atwell's great in it. Glenda Farrell's great. It's a fun film. Uh it's a great concept and a great idea and some of the melting wax figures in the opening part of the film is just really creepy in itself. Did Faye Ray make this? No, unfortunately she did not. Good performance. Could have been better if she, but not necessarily her fault. She just wasn't given enough to do in this film. But they use the heck out of her name, dude, to promote the film. And that happens sometimes with films. Actors or actresses get hired. They do a handful of scenes, and yet their name gets like top billing or second billing. And they're clearly being used for their name recognition. I have a feeling maybe that was the case here. I always gravitated toward writers because I, I like the idea of being, having someone really to talk to, you know? Well, should we talk about the giant gorilla in the room? We shall. A forgotten film. We, You know, whatever happened to King yes, Kong? Yes, how can we watch that, Richard? <laughs> King Kong, 1933, RKO Pictures, one of the greatest films ever made, I think, arguably. It's a classic. It's one of the best monster films ever made, but it's also often considered one of the best films ever made. And a lot of lists will include King Kong. You've got Fay Ray in, in clearly a starring role, the role that I think defined her career. She was never better than she was, at least as far as genre-related films. I don't think she was ever any better than she was here in King Kong. Now, Nick mentioned that there was a, perhaps another film, I can't remember the name of the film, but that was better. Uh, and so I can't say that this was definitively the best film of her career because it's obviously a lot of her work that I didn't see, but it's the one that gets talked about and, re and she's remembered the most for. My first experience seeing King Kong goes back some point in the 1970s. I would have seen this on, on our local ABC affiliate. Um, and so I have seen King Kong more times than I could count. Uh, I've seen it on pre-cable, on cable. I had it on VHS. I have it on DVD. I don't have it on Blu-ray. Do you have the Blu-ray? I do not. I, you know, I'm happy with the DVD release. I know that, you know, a lot of people just automatically jump to anytime that anything's put on Blu-ray. I've heard the blue is good. I was really impressed. I had the remastered version, the one that came out circa 2005 about the same time that Peter Jackson's remake was coming out the one that includes the spider pit recreation is it sequence. in a tin box I didn't get the tin okay, I've got for that it, but I have I have what was included in the tin I missed out on getting the tin but yeah it's it's a, a great version of it but it is on blue too for I, I think twelve dollars is what it's currently going for on Amazon hmm. which seems crazy that it's that cheap great cast 
you know, April 7th, 1933, this film gets released and it has never been out of circulation, never been a, a hard film to find. It is, is, out of all the films we're talking about, by far the easiest film and chances are everyone has seen this film at one point or another. If by some chance you haven't, you need to correct that immediately. As is, we hear on other shows, stop the podcast now, mm-hmm. go out, find it, and then come back. What do we have to say about Fay Ray's performance in this this little indie film? Well, I'm going to backtrack just a step, and I want to just say my experience with King Kong. I don't know when I first saw it, but just like you, seen it a lot of times, and it's one of the under one of the single digit number movies that I've rated a ten out of ten. I just think it's perfect. It's one of my favorite movies. I do have a quote from Famous Monsters. I mentioned this came from issue number. 30, I believe. Yep. It's actually a transcript of an interview that Fay Ray did on Friday, November 9th, 1963. I don't know what show it was, but Hugh Downs is the uh, interviewer. I don't think it was 2020 back in 1963. He did, he but, did a uh, interview program prior to okay. 2020. So yeah, okay. I know what, I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So this is about casting uh, of her in King Kong. He asked, how did you know that you'd been cast in the role of Andero? She said, I know two very fine producers. I knew Two very fine producers, Marion C. Cooper and his partner, Ernest B. Shostak, and I admired the work they had done. Mr. Cooper said to me that he'd had an idea for a film in mind. The only thing he'd tell me was that it was going to have the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. Well, naturally, I thought of Clark Gable, hopefully, and when the script came, I was absolutely appalled. I thought it was a practical joke. I really didn't have much appetite for doing it, except that I did admire these two people. And I realized that it de- at least it did have scope, a good imagination. It has dimension above anything else that has been tried in the field. So that is her feelings upon being cast. And then one other quote, because her scream is iconic. We've mentioned that before. He asked her, what about those screams? And she said, well, I just imagined I was four miles from help. And, well, you'd scream too if you just imagined that situation with that monster up there. And then when the picture was finished, they took me into the sound room, and then I screamed more for about five minutes, just steady screaming. And then they'd cut that in and add it. The one thing that's interesting about King Kong versus the next film we'll talk about, Black Moon, is is what Fay Ray, you know, remembers about each of these films. And, and King Kong, you know, was something that she didn't anticipate was going to be a big hit, and yet defined her career and she continued to to revisit in in one form or another you know throughout her life one of the things i noted was that you know in fay ray's life you know she uh had this life of course away from hollywood she was married three times from 28 to 39 42 to 55 and then 71 to 91 her last two husbands passed she had three children she certainly left them a, a great legacy she had this this wonderful life outside of Hollywood, yet in her Hollywood career, she did so many films, but yet she's defined by this one film, which is, out of the films we've seen, it, it is absolutely her best performance, but it was something that she just never thought was, she just thought it was another film she was going to do and move on to the next one. Prime example is that, you know, she attended the 60th anniversary of the Empire State Building in 1991. Empire State Building is is an iconic image in this film, but you know, for an actress to be asked to come back and celebrate the anniversary of a building that was featured in a film, how often does that happen? It just doesn't. 
You know, that's the one thing that's great about these genre films is that little tidbits like that, you know, are remembered. Whereas in other films, oftentimes they're, they're just, they're kind of forgotten. Uh, an actor or actress can do a fantastic film role, but yet they're not going to be invited to a convention where they will have, you know, you know, 100 people in line to get an autograph. Whereas somebody, you know, like Faye Ray, had she, you know, lived long enough to to be a part of the convention circuit. I don't think that she ever did uh, attend conventions. She might have missed, because for, you know, certainly because of her age, she might have missed that that opportunity. But she'd be somebody where today, yeah, there, there would be a line of people waiting to get her to autograph because she's part of this iconic film. You know, when she passed... The Empire State Building dimmed its lights for 15 minutes two days after she died to pay you know, homage to this great actress. Again, simply because the building was featured in this film, that it just kind of boggles my mind. I mean, that's it's something that she just didn't, you know, she has remembrances of, but she didn't really think was just going to be anything more than just the next part and she'd move on to the next. And yet it stayed with her for really you know, the, the rest of her life. I mean, she, she was, you know, remembered for that one role. I have a question for you. I could swear, I know she did not have a cameo in the 1976 version of King Kong, but I thought I read something about she didn't have a cameo because of something, or it just, it seems like such a missed opportunity. Do you know anything about that? I've read a couple things about both the 76 movie and the 2005 film. The The 76 movie, from what I read was that she, she read the script and she just, you know, she didn't like what they were going to do with, hmm. with the role. And, and that was very similar to, again, read that she, uh, Peter Jackson, you know, was interested in in having her make a cameo in King Kong, but you know she and supposedly she read the script, but again, mostly this time because of her advanced age. I mean, she was you know she passed in two thousand four at the age of ninety six, which would have been roughly about the time maybe two thousand and three. So she might have been ninety five when she read the script. Again, she just didn't have any interest in in the remakes because she always felt that they just weren't anywhere yeah. close to the original, which honestly they're not. I mean, the 76 movie is, is great. The, the, I like the Peter Jackson film, you know, for what it, it attempted to do. Other people didn't like it. I enjoy it. But no matter how much they, they tried to do, it never came close to matching the original, which was a product of its day and its time. But also, it's just, it's a fun film with a good cast, and everything just, one of those moments in time where everything clicked. Everything worked right in that movie. The special effects, the the script, the the production, everything just has happened, and, and, a, and a gem of a film was created. And anytime you, you're doing a remake, it, it's you're doing a, a paler version of, of the original. I think that's why Fay Ray didn't do any appearances. She just didn't feel like it came close to matching the original. Hmm. Another thing that contributes to her being able to make so many movies in 1933 that was, was that King Kong was not a, a consistent shoot. She came and went uh, several times. You know, she'd shoot her scenes. They'd do some special effects. She'd had to go back. So she was actually making other movies 
at the time that she was still making King Kong. Most Dangerous Game being one of them, actually, is that's her and, and uh, Robert Armstrong were doing some work for that film while doing King Kong as well, which is why the sets were also being used. You know, King Kong is, is everyone, you know, there's so many things you could talk about King Kong, so we're not going to go into a lot of detail. We've talked a little bit about it way back in episode one when we talked about the 76 film. We've never done a proper episode on King Kong, and I don't know if one's needed because it's one of the most talked about films that's been done by other podcasts, and I think that you know, there's certainly we would have our, our two cents to offer. I mean, but it goes without saying it's a great film. I did come up with some trivia facts, though, that I'd never actually heard about before. Ooh. Oddly enough, I didn't realize that King Kong saved RKO Pictures from bankruptcy. I had never seen that little tidbit before. Hmm. I thought that is in itself amazing. One of those cases where what if the movie had not done well, RKO would have gone bankrupt. You know, King Kong in itself might very well be a public domain film. If you think about it, if RKO had gone bankrupt, someone either, a studio would have had to have come along and purchased the rights to the films or the films would have fallen into public domain. King mm. Kong might be something we could get on a Mill Creek set, theoretically, had it not done as well as it did. Uh, another was that this was the only film to debut on the two largest theaters in New York City at the time, the Roxy and Radio City Music Hall, simultaneously. The total seating capacity was about 10,000 between the two theaters, and they sold out every performance 10 times a day. That is, is, is mind-boggling when you think about it, how many people were seeing. But that movies back then were an event, and you, I mean, you had your low-budget films, but then when you, you think of the grand thing, people, you see the images of people in suits and ties and stuff. It was going out for a night at the theater, and these films like this were just these huge spectacles. But you see images of, like, lines wrapped around the block, and we don't get that nowadays very often. Uh, maybe when a Star Wars film opens up, you've got, you know, a bunch of Jedis lined up with their lightsabers waiting to get the first seat on a Thursday night before beforehand. But I think even some of that has been kind of pulled back a little bit because movies are now seen on so many screens. And in a place like Kansas City, I mean, when something like Star Wars opens up, it's going to probably play on 40 or 50 screens at least uh, multiple times a day. So you've got a lot of opportunities. But back then, you know, if you lived in New York City, it may have only been playing at those two theaters. And... You know, if you wanted to see it, it was going to be an event. And I didn't know that either. That, that's, that's crazy to think that that many people were seeing it per day when it opened up. Mm -hmm. Faye Ray's performance, as we said, it's great in this movie. She, she's never better as a scream queen. She never looks better. You know, she's got the, what, the, the, the more blonder hair in this, this film. You know, she looks stunning. Some scenes that got past the censors. I mean, there's certainly a hint of nudity in some of the, the things that she's wearing that should have been caught by the censors but didn't. And maybe back then, because the images weren't as sharp as they are now, some of the, that might not have been caught. Uh, whereas today, when you're watching, you know, we're seeing images sharper than what probably most people saw in 33. You catch little things like that or strings or things that, you know, the background that we didn't see. Stunning film, my favorite Fay Ray performance. I don't know what more we could say about it, honestly. I don't either.
I had been at Columbia doing a lot of bee pictures. But what I wanted was a part that uh, just had some character that wasn't just decorative, you know. I, I thought most of the time I was being given roles of just they liked how I looked, and then suddenly they gave me a role in of Ann Carver's profession. Well, Richards, in essence, were in the mid-30s now, or post-King Kong with Fay Ray, and we talked earlier about why she didn't become a bigger thing after this, and this blows my mind, makes me mad all at the same time, but I picked this up in a couple different places. I think primarily it was on the, the documentary I watched on YouTube, for all that King Kong was, for all the success it had, it was still just considered another horror movie. And it did not really escalate her status. So she had a decline and she went into low budget action films. I think we tend to forget that while the horror movies were successful, some were, you know, obviously Dracula, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, King Kong certainly had a measure of success. We, we hold them up as iconic films today, but back then, horror was definitely still considered second class. If you were an actress or an actor, you wanted to be in a drama. That was That's where the good acting was. Then maybe an action-adventure film. Then maybe a comedy, unless it was a mainstream comedy. Even then, comedy actors were considered less than... A, a dramatic actor or actress. Uh, I mean, I think Marx Brothers, mid-30s, they, they had this great contract at MGM, and they had the first couple of films did great, but then a change of regime, and all of a sudden, you know, the new regime is like, well, we really don't like comedies that well, and we really think that Marx Brothers is beneath what MGM is doing, so we're going to honor your contract, but your films are going to get less promotion the status of the films were, were kind of diminished. So I think that that happened a lot, especially back in the, in the, in the Hollywood back then. And if you think about, even in, in recent memory, that still was, was the case, right? I mean, horror films are, are, can be big money now, but you know, at what point did horror films kind of rise from being something that, that was, a, was a B quality, drive-in quality, to being A-list, I think 70s, maybe The Exorcist might be one of the first big modern day films where films like Halloween, stuff like that were, were considered big box office draw, but science fiction, very much the same way. Before you get to Star Wars, science fiction films were rare that a film was considered an A-list film. Twenty, you know, 2001, for example, was was a rare case where science fiction film was was considered a list. Other films like Soylent Green and The Omega Man. Yes, they had Charlton Heston, but they were considered B films. So not surprising, I guess, that you know we think of King Kong as this great film. It's now considered one of the greatest films of all time. But mid thirties, yeah, it, for an actress. I'm sure people were like, yes, but you're not doing dramatic roles. You must be doing something more dramatic than screaming at a monkey. And that's probably played a part. She was, you know, and that's probably why she maybe stepped away from doing genre films after, you know, really the next couple of films that we're doing. Everything else that she continued to be in was non-genre related. 
And even these two aren't really strictly genre. I mean, no. Black Moon is not, you know, there's voodoo, but like there's no zombies and it's more of maybe a thriller and Clairvoyant is even further removed from horror than that. Yeah, I agree. Although it has horrific aspects. What about Black Moon? This was your first time, right? You know, I had had this on DVD at one point, 10 years ago, but then I remember for some reason the recording that I made of it didn't didn't turn out and so... I've never watched it before this. I, I I think I recorded it. I never saw it. I, I if I did, maybe it was in the background. I remembered nothing about this movie. So this was I considered a first time viewing for me, and and I love this movie. Fay Ray, she gets top billing as far as the the actresses go. She she gets above Dorothy Burgess, who plays the character of Juanita Lane the wife of Stephen Lane, who was played by Jack Holt, who did get top billing in the film. Fay Ray plays his secretary, Gail Hamilton. I think Fay Ray and, and Dorothy Burgess play equal roles, honestly. Fay Ray may be a notch above Dorothy's role of Juanita, simply because she makes it to the final scene for the happy ending. But I don't know. I mean, for, for screen time, she, she gets a little more screen time than, than Dorothy Burgess. But Juanita's got some pretty big scenes in the film and, and is a key character in the movie. Arguably, perhaps even more so than, than Gail Hamilton's role. So I, I loved what Faye Ray did in this film. She plays a damsel in distress at points in the film, but she's not a damsel throughout the whole movie, I don't think. I mean... She's not, she kind of is almost the pseudo-heroine of the piece. I mean, she's trying to to save, I forget the, the girl's name, but the young young girl, um, Stephen and, and Juanita's daughter. She's trying to keep her safe amidst this this crazy, you know, island full of, of, of voodoo. And, and Juanita Lane is essentially playing a, a, the part of a voodoo priestess. She lived there as a, as a child. She is compelled to go back. She doesn't care about really her husband or daughter so much. She just wants to get back to the island where she is, is worshipped as such. And she plays the villain of the piece until you get to that final act where, you know, now she has to commit the most horrific act of killing her daughter as, as a human sacrifice. And she doesn't want to do it. But ultimately, when you get to that final scene, I mean, she's she's going to do it. I mean, she would have killed her daughter absolutely horrific thought and the only thing that so i guess we're doing a spoiler alert here the only thing that saves her daughter is is you know her father coming in at the last minute and deciding well I'm, i've got to choose and i'm going to save my daughter's life and 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 have to take my wife's life that's that's intense stuff for 1934 the the scene where she's raising the machete or the knife and, and the intent was that she's going to kill her daughter that's that's a pretty horrific concept you don't see anything graphic but you see the terror in the little girl's eyes. She she's wondering what's going on. That's pretty intense for 1934. Did that I, remind you of anything of a more modern movie that we've discussed on the podcast? This is kind of a stretch. Uh, maybe, but I'm not thinking of anything. It sort of remind me of The Omen. Yes, yes, yeah. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. That's a good comparison. Yeah, horrific concept, right? I mean. Obviously, yeah, different scenario, but the same imagery is, is pretty intense. You know, the, this film was released June 15th, 1934. It's from Columbia Pictures. I've seen references that this film is considered 
public domain, again, I would, I would call BS because if this was public domain, Mill Creek and Alpha Video would have, would have had it out there. And this is a film that's never been given an official release. I thought that it had a few years ago, but I, I can't find it if it did. This movie's on YouTube, thankfully, and a pretty good print on YouTube. So it's, it's readily available. It's, I think it's criminal that this film has never been given an official release and is something that we should see. Why hasn't it been given a release might have to possibly do with some of the language in the film that is perhaps racially insensitive. One of the characters, who's an African-American himself, but he references the, the voodoo followers as monkey chasers. That's harsh. You know, that, that's, that's insensitive. And the black versus white conflict in this film makes it sometimes a little uncomfortable, some, some random references. It's not in your face, but they're just kind of casually thrown out there. And I think that maybe that's a reason why this film has kind of just been kind of stuck on the back shelf and hasn't been given an official release. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fun film. It's, it's, it has horrific elements. Uh, I think the voodoo is handled fairly well in this movie. There's kind of the building tension with the voodoo tribe, you know, for lack of a better, a better term, um, and their, you know, desire to get past the gates and, and to get to Juanita and then to get to the family, what they're doing to keep them on the island, you know, taking the ship away out to the ocean. I mean, their, their plan is to kill the whole family. And uh, I don't know. I, I found it really, really good, very intense. And I thought Fay Ray did a good job in the film playing what I still feel is more of a shared lead role. It is a step down somewhat from King Kong. I mean, I think she had a much better role in King Kong. She does well in this movie, but I go back to some of my comments from some of the films that we started off talking about. Could another actress have stepped into the role and done as well? Maybe, possibly. Fay Ray is, is a very attractive, you know, um, stunning to look at, and a good actress. But was there anything about her performance in the role that could have been done by somebody else? And I think probably. The screaming, I think, is... is does she even scream in this one? I'm trying to remember. I, I think maybe one scene, but I mean, she doesn't play the damsel as much in this movie. She she certainly is in a circumstance where she wants to get out of. I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I think that... Uh, her performance is, is certainly a step down from what we saw in King Kong. doesn't make it a bad role. It just it's, it seems like she was already taking a step in a direction away from being a lead actress. And I actually think this is one of her better roles in this series of films as far as a character goes. Um, her character, yeah. Gail Hamilton, is there's some subtlety to her performance. I mean, she in love with her boss and he doesn't know it and she makes little hints about it. I mean, it's very, I'd argue that, you know, it would be different if it was anyone other than her in that role. I, I really, I, I didn't appreciate the movie. It's mid to high on my list, but I, as a whole, I didn't appreciate the movie as much, but I think this is one of my favorite minus King Kong of her performances just because her character has that more to it. There's some depth there. Well, it is one of my more favorite performances, so maybe I was a little harsh, I mean, in, in trying to describe. I, I loved her performance in it, and so therefore it's one of her better performances. I just, for me, I think that, that the character as it's written 
could have been performed by another actress, although she does fantastic in the role, you know, and, and it is a good role. I just feel like when you compare it to like what she had just done the previous year in King Kong, where she was clearly the lead there here, I just didn't get the feel she was the lead. She was sharing screen time with Dor Dorothy Burgess, who, um, I mean, at the start of the film, I had to do a double take. Is that Faye Ray or is, is it somebody else? So I think that, you know, coming a year after King Kong, if the role would have been a little bit written a little bit different than to come off as, as a true lead actress, then I might have a different opinion. I love the movie. And again, it's one of my favorite performances over the films we're talking about. But it's in my mind, it's just clear that she had already taken a, a step back. You mentioned that it's hard to find. Uh, and I, it dawned on me, this is another one of those. I don't know how I watched it. Uh, it's on my computer. I was able to watch it again. Uh, I did look up um, that it was released on DVD in 2011 by a company called SPE. Wow. Never. I don't know who that is. And I did a quick Amazon search. It You can get it now on DVD. Uh, it doesn't look like it's, well... It's not direct. It's from probably an affiliate of Amazon, but $15.21, 14 used in new offers. See, I, I saw that same listing, and I think that's a bootleg, my, my guess. Uh, and that's the dangers about used to not ha you'd get bootlegs on Amazon, but those do slip through. They've got company names on them, right? But yeah, you know, it says SPE. You know, does SPE really have the the rights to release the movie? I don't know. I would I would challenge that, but I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong. That could be a, a legit release. You know, what I watched was the YouTube version, so I, I haven't seen that DVD. So it could be that it's a it's a legit release. You know what just dawned on me? TCM did. Uh, they do. In fact, it's getting ready to come up in August. I was going to mention it in TV Terror Guide. They do Summer Under the Stars uh, in the month of August where they feature a star every day. Yes. And they did Fay Ray. I bet that's where I saw most of these movies the first time was uh, when TCM ran that. Probably so. What else about Black Moon? That's about all that I had on it. I love the movie. I don't know what else I can say about it. It, it really surprised me at how intense it was. I wish it was a movie that got a bit more buzz. You don't, it doesn't seem like it's this one's talked about a lot. It, you hear it mentioned, but then it's like, you don't hear anybody. I haven't really heard very many people talk about actually having seen it. It gets mentioned because Faye Ray is in it, but then like, have you seen it? Well, no, I haven't seen it, but I want to see it. And probably that's greatly due to its, you know, questionable availability. Highly recommended. You know, one of my favorites of the films that we watched. So I liked it better this time than I did the first time I watched it. So that brings us to our final movie, 1935, The Clairvoyant, released July 15th, 1935. Gainsborough Pictures. Can we talk about that crazy intro? I know that they do other films, but that's that's got to be one of the craziest logo openings of any motion picture company of all time. That image of the Victorian woman in the hat that's like 20 times the size of her body. I, it always makes me laugh, you know, and then she kind of always leans towards the camera and bows her head a little bit, you know, or uh, it's, I chuckle. Um, that's a, that's a side chuckle on that. I, Gainsborough Pictures have done other horror films. I can't tell you what they've done, but I've seen that logo on several other films. Definitely a, a British production. Uh, I think one thing that plagues British films in the mid thirties is that Finding a good print with good audio is is always a bit of a challenge. My copy, 
was recorded off of Turner Classic Movies uh, a decade ago. And visually, the print is good. The audio sometimes, I really had to kind of strain to, to, to get what they were saying. And it wasn't always because of the, the accent, which sometimes is difficult when you're dealing with a less than crisp audio track. And then you throw in a very thick British accent. Sometimes it's hard to understand. Some of it, I think it was just the audio quality seemed to be a little off for me. Visually, it, was, it wasn't bad. This is a movie that is, again, I, you hear this movie occasionally referenced because it's got Claude Rains playing Maximus and Faye Ray playing his wife Renee. But it's a movie that I've never really heard talked about very much. And I think the fact that I saw this 10 years ago, this is my second viewing, and I could have told you nothing about the movie, really, it was forgettable for me. I hate to say that, but it really was. I mean, it's not a bad movie. I didn't hate it. But ultimately, it's like, I, you know, I, I watched this and I understood. I was like, well, this is why I didn't remember anything about it. It's the there, There's just several things about this movie that are off for me. The lack of of a true, I don't know, the lack of good characters in the sense that who am I supposed to be cheering for here? Maximus, not a bad guy, but he's not an overly likable character. He doesn't cheat on his wife, but yet he seems insensitive to her feelings because he's leaving out with this other woman, you know, Christine, especially once he realizes that Christine, you know, he's channeling energy from her or however that works to get his, his powers. You, you've got the, the parents who are kind of present, and then the mom, mom dies, which kind of serves a purpose a little bit. But then you never see or hear about the dad for the rest of the film. You've got the wife, Renee, which she's going to leave and she's not going to leave. And is she fighting for her husband? But then you kind of get the gist that, you know, she's acknowledged the fact that this Christine loves her husband. But I don't know. It's just the characters that were clearly not good, clearly not bad. They just they were a bit faulted, which... We get a lot of those kind of characters in films today, but when you watch older movies and you have some characters with faults, they oftentimes it's kind of hard than who am I cheering for in this movie. And this is the film that's like, I don't know who I'm supposed to be cheering for. It isn't until the final act that I feel sorry for Maximus. I never feel sorry for him at any point in the movie. I feel sorry for him because he tried to do a good thing and the crowd is turning on him. That's the only time that I felt felt kind of bad for him. Well, I like this a lot more than you did. It's still the bottom of my list. However, all of these movies, I, I don't rate any of them below a 7 out of 10. Where do I start? First of all, I saw a horrible print. Horrible. And by the way, this is known as another name, The Evil Mind. Yeah. In the print you saw, did it have titles for Evil Mind or was it Clairvoyant? Clairvoyant. Ah, mine was Evil Mind. We, we were talking about this before. I saw a horrible print of it horrible not only was audio bad the video was horrible going in and out of focus uh, bad cuts i mean it 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 was not good so and i don't again know the origin of of where this came from i actually liked fey ray's character uh, more than 50 50 but at least this was a woman who knew what she wanted she knew that she wanted her husband she's Got very jealous the minute she thought he was interested in someone else, which he wasn't. 
So I like all that. I think she's strong from the perspective of she's a woman that knows what she wants. Where she fails is what she wants is her man. You know, she doesn't really want more than that. So that's kind of give or take. But I at least like the that certainty of her, you know, in the beginning. I think it's a compelling concept. You know, you, you can see the future for whatever reason and, and you can tell that a disaster's coming and of course people don't believe you, then when it happens, well, you're going to get blamed for it because you knew that it happened. I think that's all very compelling. This is another one I liked the second time better than the first time I saw it. Yeah, I liked it quite a bit more than you did. I don't know what it was about this one. It, it just, like I said, I didn't hate it. It's just kind of there. And I yeah. think, again, I saw it 10 years ago and I didn't remember anything about it. Do I want to rewatch this one again? Probably not. I'll probably remember more about it this time because I watched it, you know, keeping in mind that, that we're going to do a podcast on it. So I'm watching it with a, perhaps a more focused and perhaps, again, a more critical eye. Faye Ray's performance was, was good, but again, I could see where her star was, was starting to, to dim a little bit with, with this. I mean, she's, she's, Clearly the lead actress. I mean, although Jane Baxter had, you know, quite a few good scenes as Christine. I mean, Faye Ray was the lead. But again, not by a huge margin over Jane Baxter. She, I don't know. She, again, good. Good role. But I, I felt like the script was, was, it was kind of weak at times. Uh, not, I don't know. There were parts of the movie that I liked, but parts of it just seemed like, the characters' motivations were a little off at times, and there was it seemed to I don't know something was lacking. Yeah, in this it's movie. an odd movie. I mean, it doesn't, and maybe it's the fact that it's British from that era, but it does it doesn't play like a typical movie like these others do. It's sort of very matter of fact. They don't really build up to any of this. It just kind of happens. Uh, I do have a maybe a stupid question. So she did she go to London to make this movie? I mean, it's a British film. British produced. I, I'm, that's something I want to investigate because usually, especially during this time period, you hear of a star like going to Europe and they're there for a while, a period of time, and they make several movies, you know, over there. I'm just curious. I, I have not heard anything about Faye Ray doing that. And I think I'll do some investigating for our next episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, uh... I think the one thing that I that I get from from this episode is that, and I I loved all of these movies to one degree or another, some more than others, with the exception of the Clairvoyant is one that I, I, you know, I could find good in all the other films. Clairvoyant for me was just off. I didn't I just I didn't hate it, but it was just kind of there. Yeah, but I get it. I get that. I I, 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 what I got out of this was that I, I do want to see some more of Faye Ray, which I think is the good thing, right? It's like. I've seen these films, but now I want to see her in some non-genre films. The movie that, that Nick mentioned earlier was uh, Ann Carver's Profession. It's a film that he feels is one of her best performances. You know, it, it's got a six rating on IMDb, so that's not great, but IMDb is what it is. I think those ratings, you know, can be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, it depends how many people. That's a movie that, again, you know, she's done a lot of films, and most of them have never been released uh, commercially, so... I'm curious, you know, the availability on that one. I think I'm going to seek it out and see if I can find it and, and try to check out some of her other films. That's a good thing when you, you start doing research about an actor or actress and 
you want to see more of their work. You want to see, you know, what else were they doing outside of, of the genre? I, I've mentioned Thelma Todd on this show. I had that experience earlier this summer watching a couple of her performances in the Marx Brothers, which led me into doing a bunch of research. I did a, uh, an article on my blog and, you know, I really want to see a lot of her other comedies. She did a ton of other comedies and I really want to see her other work. And that's, that's the good thing when we do something like this is like, you know, when it makes you want to seek out more, then obviously there's something there that, that appeals. And I, Faye Ray, again, she's beautiful. She's, she's a good actress. Uh, I want to see what she did in, in some of her dramatic roles. I mean, obviously she was doing a lot of other films besides the genre films and, and see, you know, how she was handling some of those other, other performances. And I think that oftentimes that may give her an opportunity to use her acting chops a little more depending on some of these scripts being maybe a little weaker from an acting perspective for her characters. I really am curious to what she did in some of the other films. I've said it before. I'm interested in doing an episode where we look at the non-genre films of some big horror stars. So maybe we, if, and let us know out there if you guys are interested in that and all. I mean, I know we'd go off format and we never go off format, <laughs> No, but I think that'd be interesting to, you know, look at, at these stars. Oh gosh, that would be so easy to do, right? Yeah, I yeah, mean, we easy. Could, and we could, we could do an episode where we do like a film of Karloff's, a film of Lugosi's. Vincent Price. Has, there's Vincent so many Price, of his that I... Um, absolutely. You know, Vincent Price, is, there's a couple of great films that he did that aren't really horror films, like just specifically, you know, from the latter part of his career when he was doing a lot of, of the Poe work. He did films like Confessions of an Opium Eater, which is, is not a horror film, but is a really interesting film, quirky in ways. So, yeah, let, let us know if that's something you guys, you know, we can go off format for an episode and and go kind of non-horror, but take a look at some of the other non-horror films that these these great actors did. As long as we don't do Island Monster of Boris Karloff, I'm on board. That's a horrible film. Yeah, I think Faye Ray, you know, I'm really curious to see what else that she did. And speaking of that, there is a clip in that YouTube video I watched, and uh, I believe it's Faye Ray More Than Beauty is the name of that. There is a clip of her. It was in, in one of her westerns. I don't know if it was silent or not, but she, there's some kind of fight, and and they show a clip of her jumping up. I mean, she, you know, bends her knees and jumps into the air, waving her arms in the air, and she's like, we won. And... It must be silent because I remember the subtitles of that. But I just see her doing that, and that's the most dynamic, excluding King Kong, that I've seen her in anything. And I'm like, I want to see that movie. That little clip to me captured the magic that that Fay Ray has. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So should we do our final rankings? Um, yes. Do we want to talk about the end of her career first, or do we want to talk about the movies and then go? Uh, let's do our rankings real okay, quick and okay. then finish up. If that's all right. So I think both of us, number one's King Kong. Yes. I, almost any uh, list, King Kong is going to be at the top no matter what you're looking at. Uh, what do you have as number two? I think we differ here. Uh, number two for me would be, gosh, gosh, gosh. I think you implied earlier is probably Mystery of the Wax Museum. If I'm going on the movie itself and not Fay Ray's performance, which I guess is maybe yeah, how we need to approach that's these, how I, did. I would say, yes, Mystery of the Wax Museum would be would be second for me. And third? Third would be, 
Today, it would be Black Moon because okay. it's fresh in my mind. Tomorrow, it might be the most dangerous game, which would be the next one on my list. So okay. those, I thought, those might be reversible. So. Yeah, I thought maybe we were going to have those flip, but we don't. I've got most dangerous game as two, Mystery of the Wax Museum as three, and then Black Moon as four. Okay. What would you put fourth? Well, or for, I guess we're on five, aren't we? Yeah, we'd be on five. So five for me would be probably Dr. X. Me too. Well, then we're, I think we'd be the same then yeah. by process of elimination. Yes, Vampire Bat and then... Clairvoyant. Clairvoyant. But Clairvoyant being a lower bottom number on yours than on mine. Uh, yes, it would be five point... Or what, what do we have? Six? Six point five? I don't know. Yeah, it would be definitely at the bottom line by a bigger margin. So. All right. All right. So yeah, tell us what happened after the Clairvoyant. How did Faye end her career? Well, I mean, you know, there's, there's probably a lot more to tell about the latter part of her career. Suffice to say that, you know, she started to get lesser roles, although she still remained quite busy until the early 1940s. Her film roles were becoming farther and fewer apart and of lesser um, importance, I guess is the best way to describe it. And then I believe in the early 40s, her career kind of stalls. And then about a decade later, she resurfaces. And then she does start doing a lot of television work. She does 27 episodes of a series called Pride of the Family in 53, 54. Never heard of it. That says a lot, I guess. I think probably the most prolific role she had as far as film roles in the 1950s was a supporting role in Tammy and the Bachelor in 1957. A lot of other films that I did not recognize. She did TV work, Alfred Hitchcock, 77 Sunset, Sunset Strip, Playhouse 90, Real McCoys, Wagon Train, three episodes of Perry Mason, one of which was her last regular role in 1965. And then there's a 15-year gap until the 1980 made-for-television film Gideon's Trumpet, which was one of the last films starring the great Henry Fonda. That was kind of it for the end of her career. I mean, she, you know, certainly hung on for post-King Kong, but her, her star wasn't shining quite as bright. And then by the 50s, I would say, became quite dim as far as film roles. But, you know, she continued to get television work. Um, and then she, you know, Gideon's Trumpet, I'm, I'm really curious as to why, you know, how did she get involved in that film 15 years after walking away? And then why just that one film and then nothing else after that? That aside, that, that was kind of the, the end of her film career. And um, I've got a couple things just to fill okay. in. So yeah, it was 1942 when she quote unquote retired, came back in 53. After that, it was mostly... The thing I read, playing mature character roles. Uh, her last film in 58 was Drag Strip Riot. And then just backing up a minute on the TV show you mentioned, Pride of the Family, she played Natalie Wood's mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> Faye Ray lived to be a uh, very respectable age of 96. She passed away of natural causes on August 8th, 2004 in New York City. That's a lot of actresses, you know, we hear so many tragic ends to, to actresses in the in the third, you know, in the that twenties, thirties time frame, forties. It's nice to to say that there was no tragic end. Faye Ray just lived to be ninety six and died of natural causes, and that that's a, a as good an ending I think as as anyone could hope for. And in New York City, how appropriate was that? Exactly, definitely. 
Very good then. Well, I enjoyed this. Nick, I hope we did it some sort of justice. If not, uh, people could fast forward through all that and or go back and just listen to your uh, email. Again, we appreciate you sending that, suggesting this. I think it was a great idea. Uh, I consider you as much a part of this episode as uh, anyone else. So and thank I, and, you. And I hope, Nick, that, that you didn't take that I, I didn't like Fay Ray. I think, uh, you know, I actually, you know, enjoyed her performances in these films, and this was a, a definitely a very fun episode to do. It's inspired me to seek out some of her other work. So I might not hold some of these performances maybe as high as you do, but I still definitely enjoyed them. And more importantly, as I want to see more. Thank you for the suggestion. That will be it then. We will take a quick break, come back, and run through our regular features. I've enjoyed the time that I've spent in motion pictures, and why shouldn't I? I mean, it's too easy sometimes to, to find uh, things to blame. I, I just don't believe in that. I, I, I want to be an, I'm an appreciator. We're back with August releases on home video. Richard, I don't know if you care much about it, but I'm very excited about an August 6th release of Alice, Sweet Alice on Blu-ray from Arrow. It's a movie I didn't watch for years because I didn't, I just thought Brooke Shields and a cheap horror movie. I, I don't know. It's amazing. I, I consider it an, an American giallo. It, I love it and I can't wait to get it on Blu-ray and, and watch all the extra features. I think that explains it. I'm not a big fan of giallo films. So yeah, yeah I've seen it and... I'm probably not as excited as Oh, I was are. so surprised. I loved it. Uh, Shout Factory continues on the 20th with its Hammer Train Horror of Frankenstein. And on the 27th, a week later, Fear in the Night. Fear in the Night does have Peter Cushing. I kind of forget about that, and it's a good performance for him. So I originally thought that I wouldn't mess with it, but because of Cushing, I think I'll get it. Kino Lorber is hot on Shout Factory's trail with its releases. It actually has more classic horror movies coming out this month than Shout Factory, believe it or not. We've got The 40 Man on the 20th, Billy the Kid vs. Dracula on the 20th, as Richard shakes his head, and Dinosaurus on the 20th. Uh, so that's three movies of varying quality coming out then. So I think that's, we live in a world where Billy the Kid versus Dracula comes out on Blu-ray and we can't get Mysteries of the Wax Museum to even have its own standalone release. That's mind-boggling. Yeah. Then the 27th, a company called Cynodyme is releasing The Leech Woman. I, I thought this was another shout factory, but uh, when I looked uh, on more details, it's a company called Cynodyme. I don't so. think I've heard of that one. And then, not that it belongs here, it, it does tangentially, but I want to mention August 27th, the Banana Splits movie comes out. If you haven't watched the trailer, it's hilarious. They have taken this beloved show from my childhood and turned it into a horror movie, and I cannot wait to see it. I have to admit, I, it, it looks like it's... Uh, there's no such thing as guilty pleasures, but I'm like, who was smoking what when they came up with this? the idea for this? I mean, you talk about obscure you know in 2019 banana splits is obscure i love the banana splits but man that's a that's a deep dive and to turn it into a horror film i i'm there i i'm totally there and i think i'm not sure but i think it's available for streaming i don't know if it's on shutter or somewhere at the same time that it's coming out on dvd i don't think you have to buy the dvd to see it on the i don't 27th. think it's on shutter because they would be advertising it on, yeah, on it's on something i don't remember but but it's, oh, wow. it's streaming movies, probably. Yeah, it'll be out there. Yeah. 
Birthdays this month, August, over the years, we've got a 70s, Directors from the 70s edition. Wes Craven, August 2nd, 1939. John Landis, August 3rd, 1950. Bob Clark, August 5th, 1939. And Roman Polanski, August 18th, 1933. I always find it interesting when there's a pattern in the months, birthdays or anniversaries. And That's cool. We had some big horror directors from the 70s. Anniversaries, there's a slew of them in August. The couple, I will point out, because we've talked to them here, both House of Dark Shadows and Night of Dark Shadows came out in August. Um, House was the 24th in 1970, and Night was the 4th in 1971. Suspiria <laughs> came out August 12th, 1977. Kingdom of the Spiders, love that movie, oh, yeah. August 24th of 77. And Blackula, August 25th, 1972. Lots of others. Those you are say the, that, I hear that in my head. You know, Blackula! <laughs> the, those are the few that I chose to highlight out of a very long list. TV Terror Guide. As always, we're recording this at the end of the month, so we don't know the entire month of Svengoolie yet. Although, if previous months uh, happen again, we'll check our email after this and they'll have the list. But... <laughs> Only thing we know is on the third Evil of Frankenstein, and chances are when you're listening to this, that date has passed. Just want to do a shout out for Comet TV. They um, have been doing these Sunday uh, marathons, and the one on the fourth, which again will have passed, but it's all Jerry Anderson, you know, Thunderbirds, Supercar Stingray, all of that. Today, as we're recording, they're doing the British show Sapphire and Steel. So watch for Sundays on Comet. They do some interesting or have been doing some interesting marathons. Yeah, they've, they've got the rights to, to quite a few different shows that they don't play during the week. Like they've owned the rights to Space 1999 for a while. They played them on Saturday nights and Sunday nights for a little bit. I don't think it, it did incredibly well. So they kind of held off and, and then did a day-long marathon of that. That's a show that uh, maybe hasn't aged as well but um still has an audience out there sapphire and steel i would be recording that today but i realized and i i think maybe christopher page mentioned it on facebook that it's available on amazon prime this is a show that i so desperately wanted to see in the 80s because i had read about it being a doctor who fan but i'd never seen it on television anywhere and honestly, today, being on Comet TV would be the first time I'd ever seen it on TV. So um, now that I know that it's on Amazon Prime, I really want to dive into it because that's that's something that's intrigued me for decades. I was watching it before you came just a few minutes. My first impression was it reminded me so much of Dark Shadows. And I suppose that's because it was shot on video, so the same type of quality. But there was even a kid that was in peril. There was a room that had a big dollhouse. I mean, it just screamed Dark Shadows to me. So I'm also very eager to watch that series. Turner Classic Movies, it's a good month in August. Uh, and these movies all fall under that Summer Under the Stars banner uh, with some unlikely stars, but uh, yet some good movies that they were in. We have uh, Brian Donlevy on the 13th. Quatermass Experiment will be shown. Liv Ullman on the 14th, Hour of the Wolf. And I've never really been clear if that's a horror movie or not. It is listed as a horror drama movie, so I'll take it. Audrey Hepburn on the 19th, Wait Until Dark. Magnificent movie. Ironically, Most Dangerous Game on the 21st. 
uh, Joel McRae as the star that night. Um, and then outside of the Summer Under the Stars, we do ha oh, no, I apologize. It is Summer Under the Stars. Leela Hyams, name vaguely familiar, but she was in Freaks, The Thirteenth Chair, and Island of Lost Souls. Thirteenth Chair is a early Bela Lugosi role. He has a, a, a role as a servant, I think, in that one. He's like the butler. All right, that's it then. Richard, what's going on with your various blogs and podcasts? Here's a shocker. Sit down. The Limehouse Golem was watched, reviewed, and is already out there in the pod sphere. <laughs> it was in a recent episode of Dread Media. I finally, finally checked that off the list. I've got a couple of reviews coming up over at Dread Media in the month of August. Did a review on Blood Harvest. 1987 with Tiny Tim and The Car from 1977. Summer Marks is on, still cranking out those Marx Brothers films. We're past the halfway point. Still, I got a lot of fun stuff coming up on that. I'm absolutely thoroughly enjoying that. It's been years since I've watched all the Marx Brothers films and, and related films in chronological order, so that's a lot of fun. Didn't get to Santos Saturdays. I was going to do that in July, but then Carl and I were talking about it. And I think I'm going to hold off so we can try to focus more on Santo and then try to shift between Marx Brothers and Santo. So um, Santo put on the back burner temporarily. It'll definitely happen somewhere down the road. But I felt like it would be squeezed in since we're focusing so much on Marx Brothers. So uh, I wanted to give Santo more more time to, to uh, for us to enjoy those films. But I've got quite a few fun Santo films to, to do. So that will be coming somewhere down the road. You know, I don't know what's going to happen in August on the Kansas City Crypt. It might be a review of Seven Footprints to Satan with Thelma Todd. I saw that a while ago, and I think that may be the film. Uh, if I can get an audio recording of that on the next Miverse Monthly audio cast. If it doesn't happen in August, which might not, it'll be in the September episode. So... Beyond that, uh, that's about it over at kccinephile.com and monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. What about you? Well, at classichorrors.club, I'm actually, I've worked ahead. I have a, a travel period coming up again and was concerned about being able to watch things and write things. So in the next few weeks, and again, some of these you will have already seen, I will be writing about the day the world ended, the raven, the black room, half-human, uh, and The Man in Half Moon Street. That gets us through the end of August. Those are our movies of the week over there. Half Human. I'm looking forward to your thoughts on that. That's a fun one. Yeah. So that's about it. Regular features going strong. I've got something new on the blog every day except Thursday. And you got to give a shout out to DC Comics oh, Guy. I thought about that. Yeah, if you guys are comics fans, uh, I am diving into DC Comics from the Bronze Age, starting out with Crisis on Infinite Earths, and every Wednesday there will be four to six short little uh, summaries of comics leading up to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then I have lots of ideas uh, for the future, but I'm basically rereading them again, putting in some screenshots, giving an opinion here and there, and that's a lot of fun. It gives me an outlet, well, first of all, a purpose to reread those comics, and then an outlet to talk about them. So give it a, a check out if uh, you're interested in that at all. Yeah, and, I, I'm absolutely loving it. So oh, thanks. Highly recommend it. And you know the CWDC shows are doing their version of Crisis as their big crossover this year. So oh, I said I wasn't going to say this publicly, but that's part of the reason of this and 
probably towards the end I'll get into some of those TV shows and definitely write about that crossover when it comes on. Tell us what we're doing next month. We're going to go back to our traditional format of three films with a theme and considering that we are closing in on the end of summer, which means it's time for all those kids to go back to school. It is School Kids Gone Bad Month. <laughs> next month we're going to be taking a look at Three films which you may or may not have ever seen. I'm sure everyone is at least aware of Nothing But the Night from 1973 because it stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. You might be aware of a movie that same year that was made for television, Satan's School for Girls. And I bet you you've never heard of Unman Wittering and Zygo from 1971, a film that I heard way back when on the Drunken Zombie podcast. I tracked down a copy and I really enjoyed that one. Early 1970s British horror with Kids Gone Bad. So I don't know if it's available on YouTube or not. It wasn't at one point, and it's never been released commercially. So that's your assignment, kids. You're going to have to track that one down, and you've got about a month. So uh, check it out. And that's what's happening next month. Great. That does it for this time then. Quick reminder, give us a call, 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. Send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. And please give us a rating on iTunes. We would certainly appreciate it. And we will leave you with a song, Fay Ray's Grave. It's from a group called Label, their 2018 release, All City, which, as all the songs we use, is available on iTunes. Thanks for coming to the meeting, everyone. Richard, thank you. We'll see you next month. Take care, everyone. I need a movement on my shoulder, but the times have changed. The world just changed without me, so I get on the plane. But everybody's in the car now. Where they're going, I'd like to know. Haven't even decided by tomorrow. Now I'm standing here and I'm talking to Favre's grave, saying I'm not gonna spend my time working like a